A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. Random House Audio presents Star Wars Med Star 2 Jedi Healer by Michael Reeves and Steve Perry. Read for you by Jonathan Davis. Rimsu 7. The Jasirek Highlands of Tanlasa, near the Karahan Steppes. Planet Drongar. Two years after the Battle of Geonosis. Lying on his bed, Joss Vondar glared at the young man in the lieutenant's uniform standing in the doorway to his kiosk. Hardly more than a boy, really. He looked like he was about 14 standard years old. What? Captain Vondar? I'm uh, Lieutenant Cornell Davini. That's nice. And you're standing there in the open doorway, letting the heat into my humble home because... The boy looked slightly uncomfortable. I've been assigned to Rimsu 7 as a surgeon, sir. Joss sat up on his cot and stared. Was he hearing right? This... this child was a doctor? Impossible. His disbelief must have shown because the boy said, somewhat stiffly, Coruscant Medical, sir. Graduated two years ago, then did a year of internship and a year of residency at Big Zoo. That did bring a smile from Joss. Big Zoo was the unofficial name of Galactic Polysapient, the multi-sentient species med center on Alderaan at which he himself had interned. Look, uh, Lieutenant, uh, Davini, was it? Uli. Joss blinked. I beg your pardon? Everyone calls me Uli, sir. I'm from Tatooine near the Dune Sea. It's short for Ulia, the word for sand people children. How I got the nickname is kind of an interesting story, Lieutenant Davini. Far be it for me to question the wisdom of the Republic. I don't think anybody really could since they don't have any wisdom to question. So, fine. Welcome to the war. You check in with the unit commander yet? Colonel Vides? Yes, sir. He sent me here. Joss sighed. All right, I guess we'd better find you a place to stay. Joss rose from his cot. Young Davini looked uncomfortable. The colonel said I was to bunk with you, sir. Stop calling me, sir. I'm not your father, even though I feel old enough for that these days. Call me Joss. Vidi sent you to stay here? Yes, sir. Uh, I mean, yes, Joss. Joss shook his head. Lieutenant Cornell Uli Davini was in for a rude awakening, and Joss did not envy him it. On the other hand, there was one possible positive aspect to the situation. Tulk would probably love the kid. Thinking of her did bring a genuine smile to his lips. His relationship with the Lordean nurse was the one good thing that had come out of this war. The only good thing, as far as Joss was concerned. Dendur was on a mission. It was a mission that had little to do with the war between the Confederacy and the Republic, except in rather abstract terms. And even though he was a freelance field correspondent, it was not something he was likely to file a story on. No, this quest was to aid a friend. Someone whom he'd become acquainted with during his stay at Rimsu 7, and whom he'd come to consider a kindred spirit. 
Den was sitting with his comrade in the base cantina. He was nursing a particularly potent concoction of spice brew, Celestin gin, and old jank spirit called a sonic servo driver. His companion, as usual, was drinking nothing. Den focused his large eyes blearily upon I-5YQ. The droid had an annoying tendency, exacerbated by the polarized drop-tack lenses the Celestin wore, to separate into multiple images. Other than that, all seemed normal enough. We gotta get you drunk, he told I-5. And this is such an imperative because... It's not fair, Den told him. Everybody else can get blasted out of their craniums. Which they do with alarming frequency, I've noticed. Everyone except you. It's no good. Gotta fix that. Assuming for a moment that intoxication is a state to which I aspire, I see a number of problems that must be solved. Not the least of which is, I have no metabolism to process ethanol. Right, right, Den nodded. Gotta work around that. Don't worry, I'll think of something. At this point, you'd be hard-pressed to think of your own name. No offense, but I wouldn't trust you to rewire a mouse droid circuits right now. Maybe later, when you've... The Celestin suddenly fluttered his dewflaps in excitement. Got it! It's perfect! What? The droid's tone was wary. We do a partial power down on your core. Scramble the sensory inputs a little bit. Loosen up those logic circuits. Sorry. Multiple redundancy backups. They're hardwired. I could no more voluntarily interfere with them than you could stop breathing. Den frowned at his empty mug. Ah, blast. He brightened. Okay. How about we realign the circuitry directly? Just temporarily, of course. That might work. If you had the picadroid engineers needed to do the realignment, which are only available at Cybot Galactica repair centers or their authorized representatives. I believe the nearest one is approximately 12 parsecs from here. Den belched and shrugged. Well, we'll figure something out. Don't worry. Dender's no quitter. I'm on it, buddy. <clears throat> His head dropped to the table with an audible thud, and a moment later, he began to snore. I-5 stared at the unconscious reporter, then sighed. Something about this feels so familiar. Joss wouldn't have started the kid off this way, had there been any choice. But the operating theater was full of wounded clone troopers. The drone of the medlifters bringing in new injuries seemed as constant as a heat exchanger as they arrived. And anybody who could lift a vibroscalpel was needed. Now... He didn't have time to watch the kid. He was up to his elbows in the chest cavity of a clone full of shrapnel. He started to ask for the presser field to be stepped up a notch, but Tulk beat him to it. Plus six on the field, she said to the 2-1-B droid managing the unit. Tulk Latrine was a Lordean. Her kind had an uncanny ability to read most species' micro-expressions and to somehow sense emotions, to the extent that it almost seemed like telepathy. She was also the best surgical nurse in the Rimsu. And more, she was beautiful, compassionate, and Joss's sweetheart, despite her being exter, non-permies, an outsider, not of his homeworld clan, which meant there wasn't supposed to be any future for the relationship. 
The Vandars were Enster, and that meant marriage had to be with someone from one's own system, preferably one's homeworld. There were no exceptions. Temporary alliances with Exters were allowed, with a wink and a nod about sowing one's wild grains and all. But you didn't bring a non-Permese girlfriend home to meet your kinfolk, not unless you were willing to give up your clan and be permanently ostracized. Not to mention, the infamy such an act would offer your family. He married an exter? Can you imagine? His parents keeled over dead from shame. Joss glanced at Uli and then at Tulk, who said, Uli seems to be doing okay. The orderly droids just wheeled his first patient out and they weren't heading toward the morgue. He's a cute kid. Josh shook his head. Yeah, cute. He risked a quick look around. They were still two doctors and three FX-7 surgical droids short of a full unit, and that was going to cost them today. Even as he thought this, he saw a masked and gowned figure step up to one of the empty tables. The sterile field kicked on, and the figure gave a bring-em gesture to the orderly droids. I don't know who that is, Tulk said, as Joss was about to ask. After months of work in this tropical pest hole, the OT doctors could recognize each other even when faces and heads were covered with surgical masks and caps. Which meant, this was a new player. And that raised the question, why hadn't anybody told him, Captain Vondar, the chief surgeon, that they had a new guy? A fresh bleeder opened up, sprayed blood in a fan, and just suddenly had other things to worry about. Nine patients later, Joss caught an easy one. A simple lacerated lung he was able to glue stat shut in a few minutes. Tulk began to close and Joss looked around. I could use a hand over here, the new surgeon said, if you don't have anything pressing. Joss moved over three tables. He looked at the procedure the new surgeon had in progress on a clone trooper. Heart-lung transplant, he asked. Yep. Joss looked at the new organs fresh from the clone banks. The dissolving staples holding the arteries and veins together were extile. He hadn't seen those since medical school. This guy was older. They must be scraping the bottom of the recycler for doctors now. First a kid, now somebody's grandfather, he thought. Who's next? Med students? You want to do those nerve anastomoses distally there? Sure. Joss regloved, took the adaptopressor suturing tool offered by the nurse, and began the microsutures. Thanks. Oleus sumtikarsus vingda, doctor. If the man had slapped him across the face, Joss wouldn't have been more surprised. That was a clan greeting. This man was from Corellia, his homeworld, and more, he was claiming kinship on his mother's side. Amazing. Lose your manners, son? Ah, uh, sorry. Sumtivondar, Oleus, Joss said. I'm, uh... Joss Vondar. I know who you are, son. I'm Errol Kursos, Admiral Kursos, and your new commander. And here was another whack across the face. Errol Kursos was his mother's uncle. They had never met, but Joss knew about him, of course. He had left the homeworld as a young man and never returned because he had. Joss tried not to let his shock show. This was astonishing, flat-out unbelievable. Of all the Rimsus on all the worlds in all the galaxy, 
what were the chances of running into Great Uncle Errol in this one? Caird of the Nadiji watched Padawan Barris Ophi, a Jedi healer, working on the wounded trooper. The cloned soldier had just come from the OT into post-op, and the marks of the laser suturing stood out against his bronze skin. The healer was performing a laying on of hands, no doubt something to do with the Force. Caird knew little about such things, and could care less. He had no doubt that the Force was real, but since Jedi did not normally concern him, neither did their mysterious power source. As an agent of Black Sun, his primary focus was on more practical matters. Still, it was interesting to observe her work, and he was in a position to observe it quite well, since he was standing near enough to touch her in the post-op chamber, hidden, as it were, in plain sight. Normally, Caird would stick out in just about any crowd of sapiens, for those of his species were not well known in the galaxy. Nedij was one of the more outlying worlds and quite insular. His sharp face, stubby beak, violet eyes, and skin covered with pale azure down would definitely draw stares, were he dressed in his usual garb. But now he was effectively invisible, having chosen for this assignment a perfect disguise for a medical facility. The siblinghood known as the Silent were ubiquitous throughout the galaxy. They never spoke. They usually kept their features and bodies hidden inside flowing cowled robes, and for the most part, they did nothing except stand and be. They believed that their meditative presence in the vicinity of illness or injury somehow aided in the recovery of afflicted patients. And the amazing thing about it, the thing that reputable scientists and doctors were at a loss to explain, was that the silent were right. Care didn't know how such a thing could be, and didn't particularly care although he did sometimes wonder if his presence was having the same palliative effect, since the thoughts usually passing through his mind were about as far from the serenity of a silent as Drongar was from the galactic core. No matter. He was pretending to be one of the siblinghood because it let him become part of the background, in a way no other role in this Republic mobile surgical unit, Rimsu, could. Caird was here because of the bota, pure and simple. The rare plant would be a heavyweight addition to any physician's armamentarium. It could be an antibiotic, a narcotic, a soporific, all manner of things, in fact, depending on the species using it. It was a more effective curative than cambolictus leaves or bactifluid for the abyssin, a more potent psychotropic than santharian tenorroot if you were a falline, and an anabolic steroid that could help wiffids attain their personal bests. Black Sun could make a fortune moving as much boat as they could get their hands on. It was a product with true universal appeal. Up until recently, the crime cartel had been able to obtain fair amounts of carbonite-encased bota, which could be smuggled without detection or damage from a pair of black marketeers in the local Republic forces. Alas, both of these suppliers were no longer among the living. One appeared to have deleted the other, and Caird himself had killed the survivor. Thus, Black Sun needed another local contact, and until he developed one, the Vigos had decreed that he would remain here. Black Sun did have a contact on planet, in this very Rimsu, in fact, but unfortunately, it couldn't utilize this op, who was a double agent.
working also for Count Dooku's breakaway factions. The spy would not risk discovery by becoming active as a procurer, and Caird could understand that. Furthermore, Lenz's current task of leaking information about both sides to the criminal organization was far too valuable to them. Being a spy in an enemy encampment was not easy. There was nothing particularly original or surprising in this observation. The truth seldom has those attributes. But that didn't make it any less difficult. To work undercover in an enemy military base, one had to have more eyes than a gran and be as vigilant as a male hanenthi. One had to be ever mindful of the fact that a spy was an outsider, an interloper. One could never relax one's guard, even for a second. Not that anyone had reason to suspect the spy, less so now that the hut and the former admiral had been shown to be something other than they had appeared, not to mention both of them dying. But this was war, and spies were summarily executed when caught, and they were caught, many of them, in places far less likely than a Rimsu on some lonely planet way out on the tail end of the galaxy. Complicating matters further was the fact that there had been deaths, deaths for which the spy, who served two masters under two aliases, column to Count Dooku's separatist forces, and lens to Black Sun, had been at least partly responsible. Column stood before the window of the cubicle, looking out at the base. Rimsu 7 had been mostly rebuilt by now. The move from the lowlands to the highlands had been accomplished with relatively few problems. The admin center, supply buildings, and most importantly, the medical and surgical structures had been put up by the construction droids in less than two of the local day cycles, a Drangarian day being just over 23 standard hours. The cantina and the chow hall had been completed before nightfall of the third day. On the surface, at least, things seemed to be back to normal. Column turned away from the window toward the desk that took up most of one wall. The separatists were waiting to hear the latest, and it was necessary to work up one of the complex coded messages and send it to Dooku's forces. The process was unwieldy and complicated. Once the cumbersome code had been used to encrypt the message... The security protocol required transmitting it via sublight waves through a hyperspace wormhole connection, rather than the usual subspatial carrier pulse. A complex and boring exercise all in all, but necessary. Failure to decode such messages in a timely manner might be fatal. Best get to it, then. It wasn't going to get any easier. Den had to hand it to Clo Merritt. The Aquani therapist had not so much as twitched a whisker in surprise when the reporter had shown up in place of Joss Vondar. In fact, of the two, the counselor was probably much more comfortable with the situation than was Den, this being the first time he had ever so much as set foot inside a minder's office. It had been a last-minute decision, he told Merritt nervously. He didn't feel that he needed to unburden his troubles, not on the Aquani's broad shoulders or on anyone else's, at least not until a few high-octane bantha blasters had loosened his frontal lobes enough to set him talking. Den was firmly of the opinion that pub tenders made the best therapists, and he told Merritt so. Merritt nodded and said, Sometimes they do. He leaned forward. So... What brings Dender to my inner sanctum? 
Den chewed his bulbous lower lip. Blast. But this was a lot harder than it had looked to be. Josh said that I should take his time, he said finally. He's up to his hairline and wounded troops currently. Merritt made no response to this at first. Then he leaned back and said, And? Den could already tell this was going to be no fun at all. Well, it's just that recently I came across some more intel about the men that Fogi killed. You remember, he died in his one-man assault. Merritt didn't move, but something about him warmly invited the reporter to continue. The twirl pundits managed to sell him as a hero. No one wanted to touch my story with a 10-meter force pike. Jai was a killer, cold as vacuum when he was alive. Now he's a milking hero. Thing is, he just might really be one. How do you mean? Den fluttered his dew flaps. He took out a whole contingent of Silesian mercs and a super battle droid. Never seen anything like it. Padawan Ofi said he just went berserk, killing mindlessly. But he knew he was going to do it. He had himself hollowed and sent the Kron to me. And according to my source, he didn't pick those mercs at random. They were an elite combat team on a training mission sent here because of the extreme conditions. Supposedly, they were a strike force being prepared for a major covert attack. So you're led to what you feel is an inescapable conclusion, Merritt said. That Fogi, instead of just indulging in an orgy of mindless murder, gave his life in a heroic action that may have had large-scale benefits for the Republic. I'm not entirely dismissing the mindless murder orgy element, Den said. But basically, yeah. And it lets you feel a satisfying righteous outrage when he's painted as a champion. Den sighed. I'm nearly twenty standard years a reporter, Doc. And if anyone knows the galaxy is in black and white, it's me. But now I feel like some wet between the dew flaps couplet, who's just learned his system senator takes graft. I feel betrayed. He snorted, shook his head, and looked at Merritt. Why? I have a theory. So do you. Let's hear yours first. Den looked skeptical. Why not yours first? It's my office. Merritt smiled slightly, and Den couldn't help grinning back. A minder, a Jedi, and a silent in the same camp, he thought. No wonder the psychic energy around here is thicker than swamp gas. Den pursed his lips, then shrugged. Padawan Ofi told me I had the aura of a hero. Look, I don't want to be a hero, Doc. Heroes may get medals, but mostly they get dead, in my experience. No one's insisting you be a hero, Den. Good, because they'll be disappointed. But I don't want some rabid necks who idolize this one either. I just want people to know the truth. Your truth, Merritt said. Your version of events. And you want them to do more than know. You want them to believe. Den frowned at him. You sound disapproving. I neither approve nor disapprove. This is just the view from here. But, Merritt added, in all modesty, it's a view that's backed by considerable expertise in reading people. Den was suddenly feeling very uncomfortable. 
He stood and turned toward the door. Look, I gotta go. It's nearly dark and I haven't had one drink yet. Don't want to fall behind. You can hide from this behind a mug for a while, Den, Chloe Merritt said. If you do, two things can happen. One, the mug will have to get bigger and bigger to keep shielding you from whatever it is you don't want to look at. Eventually, you'll fall in. And the other thing? Merritt shrugged. You look, and you deal with what you see. Terrific, Den said. You'd make a lousy pub tender, Doc. Caird was again uncomfortable. The robes disguising him as a silent had been bad enough in this weather, but this new masquerade was worse, since he was now wearing a flex mask as well. Such precautions were necessary, however. One of the reasons he was successful as a Black Sun operative, despite being someone who tended to stand out in a crowd, was his skill at camouflage. He had even worn a hot suit once, a plastoid frame with synth flesh skin and face. By the egg, that had been a chore. Compared to that, this Kuba's flex mask and robes weren't all that bad. Caird was waiting for the latest transport to land. Along with the supplies and materiel it was delivering, it was also bringing a team who had been highly recommended to him. One was an Umbaran, the other a Faulin. According to Lenz, they were not cheap antenna breakers, but possessed subtlety and skill. They were opportunists, con artists, who made their way along the space lanes from world to world by virtue of various scams. Like most grifters, Lenz had said they had had periods of solvency, even wealth, and periods of desperation. The latter was their current lot in life, which meant that they might be useful to Caird. The transport lowered on repulsor beams down through the crimson and copper spore clouds, was admitted through the Force Dome's interrupt, then settled on its pad. His two prospects were the last to debark, followed by an RC-101 red-cap droid carrying their luggage. Neither seemed disturbed by the hot, soupy air, even though the spores were particularly bad today. Cared appraised the prospects. They appeared as different as it was possible for two carbon-based humanoids to be, so dissimilar as to be almost ludicrous. The Umbaran was short, perhaps one and a quarter meters, bald and pallid. The Fauline, on the other hand, was more than a head taller and wore her hair gathered in a topknot. She walked proudly, like a warrior. She carried no weapons. But from the fluid play of her muscles under the tight synth-cloth one-piece, Caird judged that she would be dangerous even unarmed. Caird stepped forward and greeted them, the vocoder chip in the mask imitating a harsh Kubindi accent. Hunandin of Apita clan at your service. I have been directed by our mutual friend to welcome you to Drongar. The mutual friend was, of course, the spy lens. How may I be of use to you? The two regarded him. Caird felt a definite tug of something. Yearning, charisma, toward the Fauline. He knew the probable cause of this. The reptiloids could give off pheromones with a broad chemo-signal base that subtly or not so subtly influenced many different sentients. He wondered if she was releasing the pheromones on purpose or as a reflex action. 
Then he was shocked when the Umbaran spoke. Fly free, fly straight, he said. Brother of the air. The nest blessing, spoken with the proper laryngeal inflection. How? How did they know? Wait. He recalled now another fact about Umbarans. They were reported to have paramental abilities, to be able to see and even influence others' thoughts. Wonderful. Yet another mind player in Rimsu 7. A miracle all our heads don't explode. Caird said in a low voice, glancing about to make sure no one was within earshot. I congratulate you on your perspicacity, but let me assure you, it is to our mutual benefit to maintain the illusion of... Of course, the Fauline said. The Umbaran's voice had been little more than a husky whisper. In contrast, hers was rich and full of life. Your secret identity is safe with us, Hunandin. There was a slight twist of sarcasm when she spoke the name. And excuse our poor manners. We have yet to introduce ourselves. She drew herself up and cared realized that she was slightly taller than he was. My name is Thula. She gestured to the Umbaran. This is my associate, Squatrant. The cantina was fairly busy, it being one of the rare times when the spore-ridden skies were not full of medlifters, themselves full of wounded clone troopers. At their usual table sat Dender, Clomerit, Tulplatrine, Joss Vondar, I-5, and Barris Ophi. These were the regulars for the twice-weekly Sabak game. The air coolers were working fairly well, which was also unusual. The filters in the refrigerating units were especially susceptible to spore rot. And because all the other Rimsus on Drongar had the same problem, replacement parts were on constant backorder. In addition to the heavenly coolness, the cantina had recently acquired a few other luxuries, either by accidental consignment or through the efforts of the new quartermaster, a Twi'lek named Nars Doja. One was the Dajaric game, complete with hollow creature generator, which was being played at one table now between two human female nurses. Another was a new auto-chiller for drinks. But the most impressive was a perky TDL-501 Unipod waitress droid whom Den had promptly nicknamed Teetle and who scooted adroitly around the crowded room on one wheel while balancing trays of drinks. Teetle pulled to a quick stop in front of the sabak table and placed drinks before Joss, Tulk, Klo, and Den. One Coruscant cooler, one Bantha Blaster, one Alderanian ale, and a Jurian whiskey. Seventeen credits, folks. Den waved one hand in dismissal. On the tab. Who's tab, hun? Your bill's higher and a skyhook already. A static pop accompanied every sentence, sounding almost like a wad of dream gum cracking. Den turned slowly and looked at Teetle. I beg your pardon? Teetle jerked a durasteel thumb toward the bar. Maurice says he can't float you anymore. So you either pay up or bring a repulsor next time. Put his on my tab. Joss told Teetle. He's covered for tonight. You got it, Captain. The waitress droid answered and zipped away. Den gave her a sour, parting look, then said to Joss, Thanks. It's hard to program good help these days. 
Joss was about to respond when he noticed I-5 staring after Tietl. The others had noticed it as well. Anything wrong, I-5? Clomerit asked. She's beautiful, I-5 said reverently. Everyone stared. Joss put his cooler down so hard it splashed onto his pile of chips. I-5, are you saying you're attracted to Tietl? The droid continued to look at Tietl, then abruptly turned back to study his cards. No, he said lightly. Had you wondering for a second, though, did I not? The others burst into laughter. Joss grinned. Why, you chrome-plated water heater, I oughta... You oughta shut up and play, Tulk interrupted good-naturedly. She looked around. Where's that card shark? The cantina's other new droid, and as far as Joss was concerned, the jury was still out on how much of an actual improvement this constituted, was an automated sabak dealer, an RH-7D card shark. A smaller mobile version of the big casino automata. The droid now floated down from the ceiling to hover over the table via repulsor lifts. It shuffled the deck in a blur of motion, then slapped the cards on the table. Cut, it said to Joss, its electronic voice raspy. Repressing his annoyance at the droid's tone, Joss cut the cards. The card shark quickly dealt two rounds with its manipulator appendages. Best in standard, it announced. First hand, place your bets, gentle sirs. Hey, Tulk said sharply, looking up at it. Clean your photoreceptor and try again. Your pardon, madam, the card shark said crisply. Bets please, gentle beings. Not much improvement, Tulk grumbled as she checked her cards. Joss shook his head. Whoever dumped this one on Nars saw him coming. Den looked around. Maybe the new droids will earn their keep, he said. More people in here now than I've seen in a while, and some of them I don't even know. He indicated a corner table where three beings were engaged in intense discussion. Chloe Merritt looked and frowned. I recognize two of the species, though not the individuals. The Kubas, of course, and the Umbaran, but the other I'm not familiar with. She's a Fallene, Joss said. They tend to be insular. Outside of some high mucky mucks on Coruscant, you don't see a lot of them off-world. Wonder what she's doing here. I-5 dropped the chip in the sabak pot. Raise. Joss looked at his cards, frowned. I think you're bluffing, Tin Man. And I think you're sweating, puny human. Who isn't? I call. The players spread their cards. Joss grinned. He was holding a commander of coins, a mistress of sabers, and an endurance of staves. He put the hand into the interference field broadcast by the card shark, freezing it. Anyone closer? No? That's what I... Unless my math module has suffered severe damage, I-5 said. I believe my hand beats yours. Joss looked down. His jaw dropped. The droid's hand consisted of an idiot, a three of staves, and a two of sabers. An idiot's array. The one hand that beat all others, even pure sabak. That's not fair, Joss said mournfully as I-5 gathered in his winnings. What does a droid need with credits anyway? Oh, didn't I tell you? I'm off to see the Sorcerer of Toon to buy a heart and brain. 
A Bothan corporal approached the table. Admiral Cursos requests your presence, Captain Vondar. Please come with me. Ole sumte Cursos Vindar, the Admiral said. Van Dunya Sinyun. Sumte Vondar Oles, Don Dunya, Joss responded, hesitating just a bit. It had been well over a standard decade since he had spoken in the high tongue. Everyone spoke basic nowadays. By all that was strict and proper, Joss knew he ought not to be speaking to Errol Cursos at all, save as a military subordinate replying to a superior officer. Great Uncle Errol was still non-permies. The social and personal invisibility did not diminish with time or even with death. But then again, given Joss's current status with an Esker female and his determination to keep it that way, the prohibition against speaking to a shunned relative didn't seem quite such a major infraction. Plus, there was nobody from the homeworld around to see it. And the reason Errol Cursos had been expunged from the clans was of compelling interest to Joss. The man had married an Esker. They were in VD's office, just the two of them. Joss had a hundred questions he wanted to ask his great uncle, and at the top of his list was one in particular. Go ahead, his great uncle and admiral said then. His voice was strong, a voice that knew how to give an order, but kind as well. Go ahead, ask. Joss looked straight at him. Was it worth it? Silence for a long moment the two of them looking straight at each other, and the older man gave him a small smile. Yes, and no. He sat down with a sigh in Vidi's chair. For six glorious years, I was sure it was. Joss raised an eyebrow. Philema, my spouse, died in a maglev accident on Coruscant six years after we married. So did 400 others. It was quick. A superconductor failed, the safeties malfunctioned, and the train left the rail at 300 kilometers per hour and rammed into a row of deserted industrial buildings in the southern hemisphere. No survivors in any of the cars. I'm sorry. His great uncle nodded. Thank you. It's been more than 30 years. No one from the family has ever said that to me. Or anything else. Joss was quiet touched by the man's sense of loss. So, there I was, Errol Cursos continued. A fresh lieutenant in the service of the Republic, my wife gone, and my family and culture no longer available to me. We had no children. I couldn't go home. So I applied myself to my work. I made a career for myself in the military. He smiled, and Joss thought there was a slight bitterness in it which is how I wound up here, nearly 40 years later. You could have recanted. I would have had to deny my dead wife to do that. I could not do so, and could not abide a family that would have demanded it. There was another silence, not one that was particularly comfortable to Joss. Joss, you need to think about all this very seriously. Joss blinked. Was the old man a mind reader? Didn't they have enough of them here already? I found out you were on this world before I applied for this duty. I inquired about you. 
I know why you are willing to talk to me. I know about you and the Lordean nurse. Joss felt his temper rise abruptly. Cursos must have sensed it. He shook his head. Don't blow a major vessel, son. I'm not telling you what you should or should not do. I'm only offering my experience. When I elected to marry Philema, I never looked back. I was young, brave, and she was, in my mind, worth all of my disapproving family put together. I had her. I didn't need them. Then, suddenly, I didn't have her. And I didn't have them, either. He paused. Family is sometimes more important than we think, especially when they are still there, but denied to you. Things happen, people change, they separate for all kinds of reasons, and they die. The woman you love today might turn into somebody you can't stand five or ten or fifteen years from now, or she might not be here at all. There are no guarantees. Joss nodded. I know. Just tell me this. If you had to do it over again, knowing what you know now, would you do the same thing? His great-uncle smiled, and it was not a happy expression. I'm not you, Joss. My mistakes were mine. Yours will be your own. Not a responsive answer, Joss replied. The older man shrugged. Maybe not, but it's true. He paused. There are times when there is no question in my mind, yes, I'd have done it exactly the same. Six years with Philema was better than 600 years of my family. But there have been other times when I wonder, what would it have been like to see my brothers or sisters' children grow up? The nephews and nieces I never met, never saw, never even knew were born. I couldn't go home for my father's funeral. My mother is still alive. I've kept track through the census databanks, but I'm dead to her. The choice I made was simple, as simple as it was irrevocable. But it wasn't easy, and it never got any easier. There's an old saying, Joss, maybe you've heard it. There's no easy way to shave a Wookiee. Joss sighed. Just what he needed to hear. After Joss had left the table, the remaining players discussed the new commanding officer, Errol Cursus, for a few minutes. I hear he's much more hands-on than Admiral Blade was, Barris said. A Bespin cloud creature is more hands-on than that brain case was, Den said. They never did find his assassin, you know. There's a thought to keep you nice and cozy at night. The card shark began to deal cards again. Den held up a hand. We're done, just finishing our drinks. The casino droid paid no attention. Dantooine double hand. Place your bets, please. The card shark's voice suddenly droned off as its arms drooped. The players looked at each other in puzzlement. Then, as one, they turned to look at I-5. What did you do? Barris demanded. If droids could shrug, I-5 would have done so. I shut it down. It was hardly the most sparkling of conversationalists. You weren't anywhere near it, Den said. True. It wasn't necessary. 
I simply aimed a microwave beam at one of its EM receptors and overloaded a capacitor. I knew it would go into emergency shutdown mode. Maybe trying to get you drunk isn't such a good idea, Den mused. You're dangerous enough as it is. The other three looked at the Celestin and the droid skeptically. Why would you want to get a droid drunk? The Padawan asked. Not just any droid. Den stood and threw an arm around I-5's shoulders, an accomplishment made possible only by the fact that the droid remained seated. I-5 needs to let his dewflaps dangle a little. Thanks for that. It's a thoughtful gesture, but I think we've already decided that it's impossible. You might be able to accomplish it, Clomerit broke in, by varying the oscillator signal so that the phase harmonics shift into a multipulse instead of a standard pulse configuration. Everyone turned and stared at the minder. Merritt spread wide, four-fingered hands, the short fur on their backs shading to dark, leathery palms. What? I can't have more than one skill? It might work, I-5 said thoughtfully. The nonlinear feedback pattern established could create a new heuristic response. Your synaptic grid processor would have to be in electron depletion mode, the Aquani pointed out. Of course, that goes without saying. Perhaps programming could be devised. Den cocked a suspicious eye at Merritt. Where did you pick up all this esoterica? And don't lie to a reporter. We always know. Merritt smiled. I've had a number of jobs before I settled into minding, including six months working as a bosun wrangler for Industrial Automaton. Den shrugged. Who knew? He turned back to I-5. What say we give it a try? And just to make sure you're not flying solo, I'll be your co-pilot. They sat in the cantina, in the middle of the midday meal crowd, hidden, as Caird liked to think, in plain sight. Caird, still in his Kuba's disguise, thanked the egg for a working air cooler finally, leaned back and looked at his two potential employees. They ordered drinks, and then, before Caird could say a word, the Fallen female said, Okay, we'll do it. What would our end be? Just like that, Caird said, vaguely disappointed. He'd expected some pretense at haggling, at least. Your black son, Thula said. Do we look stupid? How? How will you manage it? As Caird watched the Fallen, her pale green skin began to change color, shading into a warmer reddish-orange tone. And almost immediately, he felt a powerful sense of desire stirring in him, an attraction to her so strong it was all he could do to resist it. It was the same attraction he'd sensed earlier, but multiplied a hundredfold. He knew what was causing it. Pheromones, airborne chemicals released solely to cause emotional reactions in others. Thula smiled. That's how, she said. Once hired, we'll be in a position to influence those with direct access to the product. A piece of easy. But how much is it worth to Black Sun? Ah, now came the fun part. He had a lot of leeway in transactions like these. Two percent was standard, but he could go as high as four. He would start by offering 1% of the net, 
which he could sweeten with a small advance, 5,000 creds or so. Let's not dicker like a couple of Toydarians, Squaw said in his dry, papery voice. What say we get? Four percent. And a small advance. Oh, five thousand credits? Caird shook his head and mentally cursed himself. It was hard to bargain with somebody who had empathic or telepathic abilities. He had a pretty good thought shield defense when he concentrated on it, but he had relaxed and let it slip. A good lesson in that. Done, he said. But since you can see things you ought not be able to see, you know what will happen if there are any problems. If, for instance, you suddenly decided to abscond with a hundred kilos of bota to set up shop on your own, see what my thoughts about that are. Squaw grew slightly paler, if that were possible. He swallowed dryly. We'd never dream of such a thing, he said. Column stared at the decoded message on the flat screen, feeling somewhat queasy at the content. As much as the spy hated the idea, the powers that be had ordained a course of upcoming action that would involve violence, extreme violence. The Separatists wanted this world and its valuable bota. They intended to try to swing the precarious balance of power their way, and the manner in which they planned to accomplish this was, in a word, despicable. Just the thought of the consequences of this action was enough to cause nausea. It would not fall entirely to Column to implement this sabotage. Still, the spy would have to instigate a vital element of the plan at the appropriate moment. And as a result, some of the Republic's forces were certain to die, perhaps many of them, and among their number would be quite a few non-combatants. Column sighed. In times like these, only the distant goal could remain clear. The objects and people near to hand were fuzzy, and like the tiniest parts of matter, did not bear close examination. To peer too closely at them while knowing what was inevitably going to happen was to court madness. How could a being smile at those close by, interact with them, share their hopes, dreams, and frustrations, while simultaneously taking part in a plot that would end in the deaths of at least some of them? No, the immediate ugliness had to be ignored. When all this was done, when the Republic had been roundly defeated and all but not fated wrongs had been righted, then there would be time enough to grieve. Tulk sat on the end of Joss's cot and blotted her wet hair with a towel. Your fresher sonic dryer is broken again, she said. Lying on the bed and watching her, Joss smiled. Do tell. I'll have the butler droid give the mechanic droid a call straight away, he said, affecting a posh upper-class East Quadrant Coruscant accent. I do hope you haven't suffered too much in these dreadful and barbaric circumstances, my dear. She smiled back, finished blotting her hair, and threw the damp towel at him. It hit him in the face before he could get a hand up to block. He laughed, and her smile broadened. Then abruptly, it faded. <laughs> what? Nothing. She started to get up. He reached, gently pulled her back. You aren't the only person who pays attention to faces around here, you know. 
Now tell Dr. Vondar. She nibbled at her lower lip. I've been contacted by the director of surgical nursing services on MedStar. And? And they want me to rotate up for a continuing medical education short course in decubitus care. Six hours lecture in lab. He snorted. A CME class on bed sores? What idiot came up with that one? We don't have patients here long enough to develop decubitus ulcers. Anyway, with the massage fields, it's not a... I know. The order came directly from the admiral's office. Joss frowned. I see. Anything else? According to an old friend in SNS, as of this morning, I'm the only surgical nurse on planet who has been ordered to take the class. What do you think that means? The answer was fairly obvious. Great Uncle Errol, Joss said, his voice tight. He wants to check you out, and he doesn't want me around when he does it. She nodded. That's how I figure it. Joss sat up. I can tell MedStar we can't spare you right now, he said. She shook her head. No, I'll have to talk to him sooner or later. Might as well be now. I've been holding my breath ever since you told me who he was. Talk. You don't have to. She leaned over and put her hand over his mouth. Shush. I'm a big girl. I won't melt if your uncle looks at me crooked. If he's going to be family. She stopped. Are you having second thoughts? He put one hand on her cheek. Never. She smiled. All right. Then I'll go see Uncle Admiral and we'll find out what's what. It'll be fine. The MedStar frigates were the acme of the Republic Medical Corps' fleet. Equipped with state-of-the-art xeno and biomedical facilities that would rival those of many planet-side hospitals, MedStar-class vessels were designed to accept RIMSU-stabilized ill or injured patients and, when necessary, continue their treatment. Such ships were extremely expensive, and there were but a handful of them presently in active service. Given the nature and length of the war, others were being built as quickly as Kuat drive yards could turn them out. In war, the roads to victory or defeat always wound through mountains of bodies. Column, seated in the transport headed for MedStar, gazed through the small, thick porthole at the verdant landscape rapidly dwindling below. The ship's grav field ensured that the crew and passengers remained at a comfortable planetary constant. But judging by the quickness with which Drongar fell away from them, the spy estimated that the transport had to be pulling at least five Gs. The reason for the swift ascent was to pass quickly through the spore strata. Column watched as colonies of the single-celled proto-animalcules splashed against the transparasteel port like insectoids against a windscreen. Smears of color, most of them various shades of red or green, were turned into liquid streaks by the transport speed. Drongaran life was both mutagenic and adaptogenic, and its rate of evolution seemed to be constant rather than punctuated, as well as extremely rapid. Studies had found that the species on this world possessed DNA that granted undifferentiation properties to virtually every cell of the organism, allowing it to adapt to environmental threats in an astoundingly short time. 
The swift mutability posed a real threat to the aliens who had come here to harvest bota. Spores, bacteria, viruses, RNA ersatz, and no doubt millions of other tiny life forms yet undiscovered roiled through and clogged everything on Drongar. Colum sighed, knowing that this rumination on the local fauna and flora was simply a way to put off thinking about the job to come. The stroke of a finger on the holoprod control changed the image from an aerial view of Drongar to the magnified image of Medstar, waiting above in geosync orbit. What had to be done was an unpleasant agenda, no two ways about it. A spy was at times not simply a gatherer of information. There sometimes came a crux when a more active role was required. Sometimes one had to cross into the territory of saboteur. It was part of the business. Hard but unavoidable. Joss came out of a series of simple and dull procedures, routine stitchery that any first-year resident could do. But simple or not, they were time-consuming when piled on half a dozen or more deep. As he tossed his dirty surgical gown into the recycle hopper, Uli emerged from the OT, looking as if he had just had ten hours of restful sleep, a sonic shower, and a cup of hot baja. Truly, youth was wasted on the young. Hey, Joss, the kid said. They just kept them coming today, didn't they? Yeah, they do that sometimes. Too many times. How'd it go? Great. Two bowel resections, a cardiac transplant, a liver repair. All still alive, no sweat. You holding up okay? Slightly startled by the question, Joss looked at the younger man. Sure. Why wouldn't I be? Well, you know, talk being gone and all. She's not the only surgical nurse on the rotation. True, but she's the only one you're, uh, involved with. Joss raised an eyebrow. What makes you say that? Uli grinned, just like the big kid he was. Come on, Joss. We share a cube. It's not that big, and a couple of plastoid panels down the middle doesn't exactly make it soundproof. Joss felt uncomfortable. I thought we were pretty circumspect. Not really. Besides, it's obvious even to people who don't live in the same clutch with you. She okay? She's fine. She had to go up to MedStar for a CME class. She'll be back in a day or two. Joss had just settled himself at a table in the cantina. He had plenty from which to choose since nobody else was in the place except the serving droid Teetle, when the lights blinked off. The emergency generators rumbled online and quickly replaced the darkness with a slightly dimmer, more hard-edged lighting. Now what? He wondered. Teedle rolled up on her gyroscopic single-wheel platform. Hey, Doc. What'll it be? The usual? Sure. Keep them coming, and... He stopped, staring at one of the windows. Outside the transparisteel, there was some kind of chaff falling. Spores? No, these were too big, and there were too many of them. Anyway, they didn't look like spore colonies. These were white and flaky. Like ash, or like... snow? Teetle said, That's what it looks like, don't it? And my senses tell me that the temperature in here is going down faster than an off-duty Ugnaught. At her words, Joss noticed it himself. 
Son of a rage, it was getting colder. A lot colder. He stood and headed for the door, Teetle rolling along just behind him. Outside, he looked up. The force dome, high overhead, was usually transparent, though sometimes a slight crescent of pale bluish ionization was visible after dark. Not this time, though. Instead, the camp glow reflected back from what looked like low, thick clouds. Joss walked away from the cantina toward the OT. The cold was increasing, and the snow continued to drift down. The ground and most of the other exposed surfaces were still too warm to allow it to pile up, but if the temperature kept dropping like this, it wouldn't be long, he estimated, before they would have to start shoveling the stuff. He remembered hearing or reading somewhere that the dome was in fact a spherical bubble rather than a hemisphere, with half of it underground. He wondered if that would have any effect on the soil temperature. Attention all personnel, came Vidi's voice over the public address system. There has been a heat exchange malfunction of the camp's osmotic force dome. There is no cause for alarm. The shielding aspect of the dome remains in effect. Technicians are working on the problem and will have it repaired shortly. Until they do, you are advised to don warm clothing or to remain indoors. Robed as one of the silent, cared the Nadiji, gloried in the cold outside the recovery room, watching with something akin to joy as the snow continued to fall lazily upon the camp, adding thickness to the white shroud that now blanketed everything exposed to it. His career in Black Sun had been long and successful. He was respected, adept, and eventually, did he stay with the organization long enough, could look forward to becoming at least a sub-Vigo perhaps a full Vigo. But when he was on worlds where the cold held sway, the call to return home was always strong. He hadn't felt it here in this tropical pest hole, which had been entirely, until an hour ago, hot, humid, and almost malignantly verdant. But now, it really was amazing. Outside the malfunctioning dome, Jungle and swamp still ruled. You could see it just beyond the arc where the dome touched the ground. But here, for the moment at least, the air was crisp and clear, reminding him of the area in which he had been born and raised. Maybe it was time to go home. He had enough credits stashed away so that he could retire to Nadij and live comfortably, if not opulently, for the rest of his days. Find a few nubile females, build a nest while away his time as patriarch of a new brood, build his own family, and forget the past that had driven him to leave Nadij in the first place. His flock considered him not of the nest, but Nadij was a big world. There was room enough for him there somewhere. Abruptly, he made a decision. Yes, by the cosmic egg. After he completed this assignment which would not take much longer, he would return to Black Sun and figure out a way to tender his resignation. A sufficiently large gift would make his Vigo disposed to wave him along. He could go back to his homeworld and enjoy a different kind of life, one in which he tickled downy fledglings and cooed sweet words to his wives instead of killing people and engineering disasters. The beings who had gathered in the cantina were a motley bunch. 
Joss, unable to find anything remotely resembling a coat, had found a blanket and cut a hole through which he'd put his head. It was makeshift, but it worked reasonably well to keep the cold out. Uli had, of all things, a paraglider jacket with full seals and gloves. He was the subject of many envious glares. Dender, who had spaced long enough to be prepared for any weather, had a shiny thermal polyfab windbreaker that kept much of his body heat in, and he received his share of glares as well. Barris wore her usual Jedi robes and looked as if she was enjoying the change from tropical to frigid. I-5 was, of course, unaffected by the chilly air, which was cold enough even in the cantina to allow breath fog, but still considerably warmer than it was outside. What did Vidi say? Den asked Joss. He said there should be spare parts in Medstar, and as soon as somebody up there can find them, they seem to have been misplaced. They'll get the regulator reharmonized and things will go back to normal. Or whatever passes for normal around here. Never thought I'd say it, but the heat wasn't so bad, Uli said. Me, I prefer caves, Den said. Constant 18 to 20 degrees, plenty of mushrooms, no loud noises. Don't see why everyone doesn't live in them. Words like dark, gloomy, and depressing come to mind, Joss said. Tittle rolled silently up. How you doing, sentients? Everybody okay in libations? Anything little old me can do for you? Everyone in the small group allowed us how they were fun, and Tittle wheeled away. Just then a Comtech came running into the cantina, obviously very agitated. There's been an explosion on MedStar, the Comtech shouted. Half the flight decks and most of the storage level just got blown to vac. Fear stabbed Joss. Talk. I-5 had managed to rig enough of the battery-powered heaters in the operating theater so that at least the patient's blood wasn't freezing anymore. A small AG droid had been reprogrammed and dispatched to the roof to plane the snow down to a level where it wouldn't cave in the thin structure and bury everybody. The droid had been instructed to leave a few centimeters of the white stuff in place to act, oddly enough, as insulation. Joss cut and stapled and glued wounded troopers, but it was as mechanical as the droid above shoveling snow from the roof. Tulk had not calmed him, and his gut was twisted in fear. Vides had come in himself to relay as much as he knew about the explosion on Medstar, which wasn't much. Nothing was certain, but the colonel passed along what news there was in a terse recital as Joss operated. A seal blew on one of the external ports, possibly a micrometeor impact, though how it got through the shields is unknown. The blowout caused a short circuit in the ship's electrical system. The system monitor shut down the power grid, but somehow a container of volatile chemicals spilled and the vapor from that ignited, setting off other flammable material in the supply hold. There was a secondary explosion, which blew the integrity. Automatics sealed off the section, but there were at least a dozen dead. Joss's throat was dry. Talk? Vides had shaken his head. I don't know, Joss. The ship's comm is on emergency status. They aren't letting any calls in or out until they lock things down. I got the mortality figure from the pilot of a transport. That's how many bodies he counted in space outside the hull rupture. No report of the onboard casualties yet. As soon as I hear anything more. Yeah, thanks. 
In the cantina, Dender worked the room. He pulled in every favor he had built up since he stepped off the transport months ago. All the drinks he'd bought for Texan grunts. All the unauthorized uses of his private comm to let people call their families, creches, litters, and so on back home. The creds he had lent until payday. He begged, cajoled, wheedled shamelessly. This was a big story, and he needed access to it. Bits and pieces began to drift in, and eventually to coalesce. Den tallied them. From an Ugnaught shuttle mechanic, he heard that one of the supply sections that had spewed its contents into VAC had been the electronic small part storage. Which, according to the mech, meant that those replacement harmonizers and crystal stabilizers the dome dinks were waiting on to stop the Mopaki snow, they were going to be part of the meteor shower lighting up the sky soon as they hit atmosphere blood, you know? Talk about your vaporware. From a comm droid that had been on duty when the accident happened, before the emergency status shutdown had hit, Den heard that there had been 186 people stationed on the affected decks. Some of them had made it past the blowout doors before they'd automatically sealed. Some had not. There were probably pockets of air in the affected section, rooms that could be shut and seals rigged. But with life support off, it was going to get milking cold in there real fast, and until the blowout was patched... No heat or air would be forthcoming. From a Kuba's transport shuttle pilot, Den got an updated body count. At least 26 frozen corpses were pinwheeling through space in the vicinity of Medstar. And that was pretty much all he could get that was of substance. There were a few people from this Rimsu up there. Card-playing friends like Tulk and Merritt. And for all Den knew, they could be two of the many trapped. Or worse twisted and ruptured ice sculptures orbiting the damaged ship. Den sat and tossed down bantha blasters like there was no tomorrow. Despite the latest influx of wounded, the cantina was full of people who had nowhere else to be, waiting to hear news, be it good or bad. Tidal rolled up. Need a refill, sweets? No, I'm good. As the little droid rolled away, Den stared at his mug. Good. That was a word he was finding less and less useful and fitting when talking about himself. He raised a hand, signaled Teetle. Maybe he did need another shot. At least these shots you can walk away from. Well, up to a point. Barris entered, brushing snow from her robe, and saw Den sitting alone at a table, staring into his empty mug. She moved toward him. Mind some company? He smiled tipsily at her, waved at the chair across from him. What's your pleasure, Jedi? I'm buying. Thanks, but no. She sat. I have to get back to the OT soon. What's the latest? He told her, and Barris nodded. When it had happened, she hadn't felt a disturbance in the Force, and that bothered her immensely. There were days when, during battles on the planet's surface, she had read the swirling ethereal currents with uncanny detail. Master Yoda was said to be able to sense major disturbances parsecs away, even sometimes of things yet to happen, though Barris wasn't sure if she believed that part. You okay? Den asked. She nodded. No reason to burden him. There was nothing he could do to help. The little Solaston shook his head, as if he knew better, but said nothing. 
Then, perhaps because she was not expecting it, the force abruptly rose swirling in her and imparted to Barris a sudden knowledge that stunned her. The explosion on MedStar had not been an accident. Joss, exhausted but still too worried about Tulk to rest, wandered through the medical ward. The surgical patients in recovery were all as stable as they were going to get, and the operating tables were empty for the time being. Barris stood next to the bed of a trooper who had some new kind of infection. One of the local microbes had apparently undergone a mutagenic shift and become deadly, a cause of considerable concern. What could afflict one trooper could afflict them all. Hey, Joss said. Barris looked away from the sick trooper, who was either asleep or in a coma. Hello, she said. How is he? No change. None of our antibiotics, antivirals, or antimycotics seems to be working. He's got a fever we're barely keeping down with analgesic suppressors and coma induction, a white blood cell count off the charts, and his kidneys are starting to shut down. He's got fluid in his lungs, an erratic heartbeat, secondary to cardiac tamponade, and his liver is working overtime and getting tired. Only good thing is, he doesn't seem to be shedding pathogens, so he's not contagious. Joss moved in, looking at the patient, whose chart identified him as CT-802. Fast as everything mutates here, it might cure itself. It better hurry, if it doesn't want to kill its host. I've done what I can, but it isn't enough. I've been keeping him stable by working on him through the force, but I can't keep that up forever. I don't think he'll see another sunrise, Joss. Joss stood there for a moment, remembering a conversation he'd had with Zan Yant in this same room. He hadn't known Barris that long, but here in the swamps, among the dead and dying, fast kinships were established among the medics. The war was the problem, and they all did their best to be part of the solution any way they could, as little as that might be. He took a deep breath. There might be something else we can try. She looked away from the patient to him, her gaze questioning. When Zan had died, it had fallen to Joss to clean out his friend's belongings. He had packed up most of the stuff, the guitar, clothes, book readers, and the like, and had it shipped to Zan's family back on Talus. But hidden away under Zan's cot had been something he hadn't included in the personal effects package. Zan's supply of processed bota. It was illegal to possess the stuff here. All the harvested and stabilized bota went to other worlds and systems, where it was worth its weight in precious gems. Like outworld plantations where the locals produced fruit and crops too expensive for them to eat, or firestone pits where everyday miners found stones worth more than a year of their pay, or any place else where those who did the scut work reaped none of the rewards. Bota was deemed too valuable to waste on troopers. But Zan hadn't accepted that. He'd managed to get hold of a small amount of the miracle growth and field-tested it as much as was feasible, given the necessarily clandestine nature of his protocols. Even under less-than-ideal conditions, Bota had cured every resistant infection a FET clone had developed on this world. The irony of being on a planet where the plant grew like a weed and not able to use it to save lives had not been lost on either Zan or Joss. 
Zan had risked his career and liberty to secretly treat patients with it. Joss hadn't been willing to go that far, but he had turned a blind eye to his friend's illegal actions. He became aware that he had been standing there too long without responding. Time to make a decision, Joss. Can you do anything less than what your friend did? Wait here, he said. I'll be right back. He left the ward and headed for his kiosk. The snow was knee-deep and still falling, but some of the maintenance droids had been set to clearing walkways, so it wasn't that big a problem, yet. Zan's supply of processed bota was now under Joss's cot. He'd kept it, not quite sure what to do with it. Now he knew that on some level, he'd been waiting for an opportunity like this. Joss? He looked up and saw Vidi's approaching. His blood went icy faster than a cryovascular transfusion. He tried to steel himself for the news that Tulk had been in the wrong place at the wrong time on MedStar, that they had confirmed the ID, that he would never see her smile again. Tulk's okay. I just got word. Joss's relief was so great that he almost sobbed. Thank you, was all he could manage. Alive. Tulk was alive. She won't be coming back down anytime soon, I'm afraid. The explosion took out four decks in the ventral hull area, including, as I'm sure you know, the docking bays. She's helping tend to the injured. Doesn't matter, Joss said, as long as she's safe. Merritt's okay, too. I knew he was off base, Joss said. Didn't know he'd gone upstairs. He noticed then that the colonel still wore a grim expression. What? I recently spoke with Jedi Ophi, and based on some tests we ran pursuant to her suggestions, we've confirmed that this was not an accident. It was sabotage. Probably the same person or persons who blew up the transport. It was done. The spy stood before a viewport looking down at the green and blue planet below. The initial cost had been 33 biological lives, 17 droids, and 7 billion credits worth of damage. And it would ultimately be far more. Because Column had been ordered to destroy the lower decks, reception of patients from the planet had been severely curtailed. Sick and wounded would begin stacking up in Rimsus, and some of those who would have lived had they been transferred to MedStar would not make it. Boda shipments would be drastically slowed as well, but not so much as to arouse Black Sun's ire. It was indisputably a setback for the Republic. Enough by itself to win the war? No, of course not. But it was another block on the Bantha's back, as the saying went. Who could say that this might not be the one that made the creature's burden too great? Or the one just shy of doing so? To call the results of the intramuscular injection of bota extract into the dying trooper a miracle was perhaps stretching the meaning of the term as Barris understood it. Still, there was no denying that the man had been calling on death's door a few hours earlier. Yet he was now awake and alert, his fever was gone, and his rapidly failing organ systems were on the mend, if the telemetric monitors were functioning correctly. His white cell count with its bacterial shift was markedly decreased, though still slightly elevated. 
he was, for all intents and purposes, nearly well. Amazing. Barris had six more of the Boda muscle poppers given to her by Joss, and she knew several patients who could certainly benefit from them. Those who were more human in their species tap seemed to derive the most antibacterial and antiviral benefits, but those for whom the drug functioned primarily as an analgesic and who were in extensive pain that was unabated by ordinary narcotics would appreciate the injections as well. There were a lot more patients in the Rimsu than usual. The explosion aboard MedStar had slowed their transfers, and while most of them were stable, some still needed more care than the Rimsu could provide. The Boda would help that. Problem was, it wouldn't last long. She heard a low moan and turned to see one of the several non-clone patients, a Rhodian lieutenant called Zepho, thrashing in his bed, struggling against the pressor field holding him in place. Zepho had chronic smashbone fever, which had apparently been dormant for years but had recently recurred. The intensity of the muscular contractions caused by the pathogen, a form of microorganism not quite a bacterium nor exactly a virus but somewhere in between, was such that the infected's ligaments would tear and bones would sometimes snap during the more violent episodes of tetany. Maybe the boda would help. But it wasn't as if he had much to lose. There were no fatal side effects of Boda on any known species. And the continued episodes of tetany could very well damage Zepho beyond the Rimsu's ability to properly treat, even if he survived the illness itself. She approached the thrashing Rhodian. She'd have to drop the presser field to inject him. A deltoid or thigh jab would do the job. The popper would blast the aerosolized drug right into the muscle tissue if she could do it before he spasmed again. She might have to use the force to hold him still. She reached the bed. Zepho, she said. I'm Barris Ophi, a Jedi healer. Uh, excuse me if I don't get up, he healer, he managed to say between gritted lip plates. I have a treatment here that might help you, she said. She held up the popper. But there is some risk, which I can't calculate properly. The Rhodian clenched all over, tightening like a giant fist. The spasm lasted twenty seconds. Blue-green perspiration broke out on his tensed body. When the spasm subsided, he croaked. Right now, healer, I would gladly take poison if you offered it. Ah! Another contraction gripped him, shorter this time. I'll have to drop the field. Try to hold as still as you can. No problem, he managed. She thumbed off the presser field and reached in with both hands, using one to steady his leg. She pressed the popper to his thigh and reached for the trigger. A major spasm racked the Rhodian. The unexpected severity of it shook Barris's grasp of the force. Hurry! But as she triggered the fire button on the popper, Zepho's leg jerked, as if a thousand volts of electricity had galvanized it. The popper bounced off his thigh. She was still gripping his leg as a second spasm hit him, throwing her momentarily off balance. Barris lurched forward, and the injector came down on the back of her other hand. The popper sprayed the suspension extract through her skin. 
Some of it went into a vein. She could feel the cold rush. Quickly, she pulled back, relit the presser field, and grabbed another boda popper from her pocket. As Zepho's muscles relaxed, she killed the field again, jammed the popper at his leg, and fired it. This time, her luck was better. A moment later, the field was back in place, and Barris stood there staring down at the Rodian. He twitched again, but less than before. And after another two minutes, the spasm stopped. Can it work that fast, she wondered. Ooh, he said. Thanks, healer. I don't know what you did, but I'll take a barrel of it. She smiled. I'll come back and check on you in a little while. The Rodian had been in the green bed, the last one in this ward. Barris walked through the sterilizing field and turned into a supply chamber. She sought the force, intending to turn it inward, to monitor herself. While it was true that Boda had not shown any adverse effects on humans, she had just taken a rather whopping dose. She didn't feel any different, but still... Sudden, sourceless light washed over her. She blinked and saw Master Luminera Unduli standing three meters away against the far wall, watching her and smiling. Master, how did you... Master Unduli went translucent, then transparent, and then blinked off like a light going out. With her next breath, Barris felt sudden energy flow into her, pure, raw, vast power. In that moment, she felt transcendent, almost omnipotent. She was simultaneously in her body and out of it, able to sense beyond three, even four dimensions. It felt as if she could grasp the fabric of space and time and turn it, twist it any way that suited her. For one blinding instant, she could feel the force as she had never done before, in its entirety. There was a kind of cosmic consciousness in which she felt connected to all things everywhere, able to do anything, anything at all. For that timeless moment, she was the force. Suns were born, planets spawned, civilizations rose, fell, the planets grew barren, the suns cold. Time flowed like a blaster bolt, like a ship at hyperspeed but she was able to track it all. Every detail on every world in all the galaxies to the end of the universe. It was indescribable. This must be what it felt like to be a god. Did such things exist? How long it lasted, she couldn't say. A few moments or a few eons? There was no way to time it. Then it was over. Barris staggered back against the wall and slid down it until she was sitting on the cold floor, stunned by the experience. She could barely breathe. The surge passed, but remnants of it continued to swirl in her. Potent patterns that eddied and danced throughout her being. She felt exhausted, but wiser somehow. What was this? What had just happened to her? Joss couldn't recall feeling more excited any time since he'd been on this planet. 
the transport-carrying Tulk was on the way down. It seemed to take forever for the vessel to land and the port to open, and five people got off before Tulk did, of course. She was wearing surgical scrubs, and her luggage was following in a baggage droid's hamper. Joss saw chillblains start to frost her bare arms. He felt a rush of joy that was nearly vertiginous as he saw her, and he hurried to embrace her. She relaxed into his arms for a moment, then seemed to stiffen. Hey, you okay? I am, yes. She looked around and shivered. Let's go to my place first. I have a jacket there. Jaw shrugged. Sure. Inside her kiosk, the heater Joss had installed and turned on earlier had taken most of the cold from the air. Tulk sat down on her cot. Snow, she said, on Drongar. Amazing. You get over that pretty quick, he said. Pretty bad up there? She sighed. Not for me. I was on the command level. All we got was a big vibration before we were sealed in. I didn't know any of the people who were killed, and the injured and survivors were triaged by the emergency response teams below decks. Josh shook his head. Unbelievable. Blowing up a medical ship. It's a terrible thing, she said. Her voice was flat and somewhat distant. Silence stretched. Want some stimcalf? That'd be nice. He busied himself preparing the drink. How is Great Uncle Errol? Tulk looked away from him, at her bag. Fine. Even allowing for the recent past horrors, something in her demeanor struck Joss as odd. Tulk? Are you okay? She waved one hand. Yeah, I'm fine. Just tired is all. It's been a trying time. Got that. He hesitated. We could go down to the cantina, get something to eat, maybe a drink. Joss, she said, I, I think I just need to get some rest. Oh, okay, sure. He hesitated, unsure of what to say. He glanced at his chrono. My shift starts in a few minutes, he said. I'll, uh, calm you when I'm done, if that's okay. That, that would be fine, she said. He hugged her, and again she seemed to stiffen under his hands. As he walked through the falling snow toward the OT, Joss felt a sudden sense of nameless dread envelop him. Tulk had come off the transport, changed. He didn't know how or why, but she wasn't the same woman who had gone up there. Something was wrong. Something was very wrong. Den sensed that something was different when he took his usual place at the sabak table. It took him a moment to identify what it was. Then he started to order a drink and realized that Teetle wasn't on duty. That was odd. Droids didn't work in shifts like organics. Teetle was always there, whenever the cantina was open. Except that she wasn't today. Neither were Joss and Tulk, but that was to be expected given that the latter had just made the drop from MedStar. The players besides himself were Chloe, Barris, and I-5. Where's Teetle? Den asked the table at large. No one answered. 
He glanced at Merritt, saw the big Aquani looking slightly discomfited. He said, She is no longer with us. What? Reassigned? She just got here. He wanted a blaster or two to loosen him up. It wasn't like he needed it, but still. There came another uncomfortable silence. Then I-5 broke it. The TDL-501 unit has been disassembled. Come again? It was necessary to obtain the central drive component. The TDL-501 unit was one of the latest models from Cybot Galactica, and its YX-90 drive's technical specs were compatible with the phase harmonics generator secondary drive of the Force Dome. It was... Dan held up his hands to stop the droid. Hold up a minute. You're telling me she's been cannibalized? I-5's expression and voice seemed flatter than usual, if that were possible. Engineering section learned that it would be a minimum of five standard weeks before a replacement drive for the damage generator could be delivered. So they sought some suitable replacement and requisitioned the TDL-501's... Teetle, Den said. Her name's Teetle. I-5 paused a moment, then continued... They requisitioned the unit's YX-90. Its field parameters are within the range needed to realign the phase harmonics generator. Den stared at the droid, his jaw sagging. I don't believe this. They broke her down for parts? How could they? She was more than just... Merritt interrupted with, Teetle volunteered, Den. Den stared at the minder. Huh? Merritt said, she knew what the consequences would be. It was her idea. Dan stared. Kark, he said. An apt expression, I-5 replied. Merritt dealt the cards. Joss had finally managed to obtain a jacket and a pair of thermal gloves, which meant that the dome would almost certainly be repaired soon. He was on his way to the chow hall when his comlink beeped. Dr. Vandar, we have a problem in the OT. Okay, I'm coming. At the operating theater, business was slow with only a few patients. Half a dozen doctors and nurses were gathered around one of the tables, Vidi's among them. He turned, saw Joss, and stepped away from the patient, who was hidden from view by the group. Colonel, what's the problem? You ever work on a Nikto? Joss's eyebrows went up. You have a horned face? I didn't know there were any on this world. Afraid so. One of the crew working the Boda fields ran over a piece of unexploded ordnance and blew the harvester to pieces. Patients full of shrapnel. And nobody here has ever opened a Nikto before. You've got a slew of species. Any experience on this one? Joss blew out a sigh. Oh, not since my first year surgical rotation. I'm not really qualified to. Nobody else here has ever laid a blade on one, Joss. Not even Lieutenant Davini. Whatever you know is better than what we don't know. Vides was right. I'll scrub, Joss said. Thanks. Talk is already here. Joss nodded. He hurried through his scrub, was gowned and gloved by the sterile circulating nurse, and stepped up to the field. He saw Tulk across the table, lining up instruments. 
He'd been hoping to get more of a sense of her mood, but they had a crowd watching, and that wasn't how he wanted to talk to her. As if some bored war deity had read his thoughts, the drone of a medlifter dopplered up. Incoming, people! Vidi shouted. Joss, you got this? Probably not, but you looking over my shoulder isn't going to help much. Go. If I have a problem, I'll yell. The watchers cleared out, leaving Joss, Tulk, and the circulating sterile droids. Joss looked across the field. Hey, he said. Hey, Tulk said. Her eyes above her mask didn't seem to be smiling. She wasn't looking at him. You okay? he asked. She kept her gaze on the patient. I'm fine. You don't seem fine. Since you got back from MedStar, you've seemed, well, distant. She sighed. What do you want me to say, Joss? It wasn't a visit to a pleasure dome. I saw people spewed into space like ripe pop tree seeds. The lucky ones died right away. People die here every day, he said. You seem to be able to deal with that. Not the same, she said. It wasn't like you did it, Talk. She gave him a sharp glance, and was about to say something when the patient's abdominal plate relaxed and retracted, and a gush of purplish hemolymph from one of the now-exposed wounds lanced out and hit him squarely in the chest. Alone in her kiosk, Barris sat and stared at the wall. She had sought out company, but being in the presence of her friends hadn't helped to resolve matters. The power of her experience, and she was sure it had been real, not a hallucination, still thrummed in her, though it was now but a faint echo of what it had been, the drip of a single raindrop after the roar of a storm. Even so, playing cards in the cantina and exchanging small talk with the doctors and nurses hadn't helped her do anything other than put off dealing with it. She couldn't talk to any of her colleagues. What was she going to say? Hey, Joss. I just became one with the entire galaxy. And how's that case of Ordolan Rhinorrhea you've been dealing with? None of them could help her. And there was nobody else she knew of who had experienced it. Certainly not anyone at hand. If anyone else ever had experienced it. Barris knew she wasn't the smartest Jedi who had ever lived, but she wasn't anywhere close to the stupidest either. She knew what had happened. She had taken a therapeutic, if accidental, dose of the Boda extract. There was no doubt in her mind that the unintentional injection and her sudden overpowering connection to the Force had been cause and effect. Her first reaction had been to calm her master. Luminera Unduli would know or she would have access to somebody with knowledge. And so she had tried, but her communications unit was not working. Everything seemed fine, all the circuits tested clean, but there was no signal. Something was jamming the frequency. She could not even get an off-world carrier hyperwave, and she had no idea why. Barris made a frustrated gesture. No point in theorizing. She had to talk to somebody who knew more about the Force than she did, to pass this along and decide what, if anything, needed to be done about it. She'd tried the unit again as soon as she'd gotten back to her kiosk, but of course, it still wasn't working. There was another way, however, an elegantly simple way. 
take another blast of the bota. She was almost certain that she could figure out just about anything once she returned to that ineffable state in which she had been before, if this time she was expecting it and prepared for it. The experience held within it all manner of knowledge. She could still feel the truth of that. Once she understood the parameters of the event, Barris could present the Jedi Council with something of incalculable value. She couldn't even imagine the miracles that a true Jedi Master could perform while suffused with such power. Why even the small handful of the Order remaining could turn the course of the war, could easily defeat Dooku's forces and restore galactic peace, did they but have access to the kind of power Barriss had experienced. She knew this to be true. She had felt as if she could accomplish all that by herself, so she knew that with such mystical strength in the hands of Luminera or Obi-Wan or Yoda, anything would be possible. Joss, my friend, how are you feeling? Joss looked at the minder. Well, if truth be known, I've had better days, better months, decades. Oh? You, uh, know about me and Tulk. The Aquani steepled his fingers. Fortunately, I have not gone blind or deaf recently. Yeah, well... I thought we were flying like a land speeder with custom harmonics, only lately she's cooled. How so? Joss sighed. Tulk and I were doing fine. Then she went up to take a CME class on MedStar. She was there when the decks blew. And since she's gotten back, she's been frostier than the snow outside your window. Merritt nodded. Well, the accident was distressing to a lot of people. The way I heard it, Joss said, it wasn't an accident. Merritt shrugged. I've heard those rumors as well. Whether the blowout was an accident or on purpose, it seems that the trauma of it may have hit Tulk harder than she's letting on. I've thought of that, but I don't see how. We have more people die in this Rimsu in any given month, in a week sometimes, than died in the MedStar Blast. Talk is often working on them when they go, looking them right in the eyes. Why wouldn't that bother her more than a bunch of people she didn't know and didn't have to deal with? I can't say. Chloe paused, as if considering something. What? Nothing. I'm not a face reader, a Jedi, or a minder, Chloe, but I didn't just fall off the Melbub freighter either. What? How well do you know Talk? I mean, what do you know of her background? Her people, her politics, her social development? What are you getting at? Perhaps she has reasons to be upset that you can't see. Perhaps there's something in her background she hasn't revealed to you. I don't think I like the way this conversation is going. The minder raised a pacifying hand. I'm merely suggesting that... As you point out, there would seem no ostensible reason for her to be more upset about an explosion on the MedStar than she'd be in the day-to-day goings-on here in the Rimsu. Therefore, there could be another reason. Joss blinked at him. Are you suggesting that she had something to do with it? 
Of course not, Joss. Only that there is apparently something going on with Tolk, about which you seem to be in the dark. If you had any idea what that might be, maybe you could resolve this. Thanks, Chloe. I won't take any more of your time. They're still playing cards in the cantina. I-5 was winning. Clean me to my daily limit, Chloe said with a smile. Which is why I'm back here. Joss stood. Maybe I'll go have a drink and play a few hands. Why not? Joss smiled and left. He didn't make it as far as the cantina. When he was halfway there, crossing the open area referred to as the quad, he and several others braving the cold stopped in their tracks, momentarily paralyzed by an ear-smiting crack of something very much like thunder. What the? A moment later, the temperature began to rise. It was easy to tell the difference because it was happening so quickly. Joss knew very little about how weather worked, but he knew that when warm air collided with cold air, things happened. And things were definitely happening now. A thick mist formed almost immediately, making it impossible to see more than a few meters ahead. The mist began to clear after a few moments. Looks like Tidal's sacrifice wasn't in vain, Dender's voice said. Joss looked about and saw the diminutive Sullustan slowly materialize as the fog thinned. Winter seems to be going away at a good clip. Jost nodded. For better or worse, the malfunctioning force dome had apparently been repaired, and already he was missing the cold. Another humanoid form took shape a few paces ahead. It was I-5. The droid was looking up. Jost followed his gaze. For the first time in weeks, the relentless glare of Drongar Prime was visible. Guess things are back to normal, he said to I-5. Indeed. The heavy air began to pulse with the distant throb of repulsors. They're playing our song, Joss said to the droid as he turned back toward the OT. I-5 hadn't moved. Come on, Joss called to him. We've got jobs to do, remember? The droid turned and looked at Joss. The subtle light shadings of his photoreceptors gave his metallic face a look of wonder. I remember. Joss stopped. You remember what? I remember everything. On Caird's payroll was the human in charge of the xenobotanists monitoring the Bota. Caird, always thinking ahead, his identity always hidden within his Kuba's disguise, had been paying the man handsomely for information regarding the state of the crop. Caird met the man in a refresher, the door blocked against unwanted company. The plant life here is constantly mutating, and that includes Boda, the xenobotanist said. There is a new mutation, and from all appearances, it's planet-wide. We don't know why. It could have been triggered by anything. The change seems to be altering the Boda's adaptogenic properties. Which means? If it continues in this direction, and there seems to be no reason why it won't, within another generation, 
Boda will be, for all intents and purposes, inert, useless. Silently, inside his mask, Caird cursed. How was he supposed to explain this to his Vigo? Who else knows of this? Well, except for you and me, nobody yet. I haven't made my report to the military. I thought you would want to know first. Good. Can you delay this report? Not for long. Botanical stations around the continent run periodic tests. These reports are funneled through my office, and I might be able to sit on them for a week or two, but no more. All right, Caird said. There will be a large bonus for you. Keep this information quiet as long as you can. The human fidgeted nervously. They'll fire me if they find out. I'll get you a better job, making three times as much. Caird pulled a credit cube from his pouch and tossed it to the man. The botanist triggered it. The amount appeared as a red number in the air in front of him. It was equal to his salary for two years. Wow! That, and that much more, if you keep the lid on this for two weeks. The man nodded, greed shone from his face. All right. The man left, and Caird lost no time in vacating the close, ill-smelling building as well. The only way to salvage this situation was to get as much of the bota encased in carbonite as quickly as possible, and on its way to Black Sun. If the plant shifted from a miracle drug to a useless weed, then however much of it was still potent would become that much more valuable. Caird reached his kiosk, sealed the entrance, and gratefully stripped off the stifling disguise. He was still reviewing options. He had his agents in place, so the theft itself was doable. But for the escape and transport, he needed a ship. One that was fast enough to outrun pursuit if they discovered the theft before he had enough of a lead. He'd have to steal one, along with the security codes that would allow it to escape. His Vigo would be unhappy about the situation, Caird knew. But he also knew that 50 kilograms of still potent and ever more valuable bota would go a long way toward calming him. Caird was feeling much better now that he had a plan of action in place. In a different and new disguise, that of a corpulent human male he met with his agents. They sat together in the crowded chow hall during the midday meal. As he expected, Thula and Squatrant had some reservations. This will kill the operation here, Thula said. That the operation will end has crossed my mind, Caird said. We've decided that cutting an artery and filling our bucket is better than bleeding a few drops at a time. War is uncertain. Somebody on one side or the other might get stupid and accidentally wipe this planet out, and then nobody makes any profit. True, the Umbaran replied. It's my job to give Black Sun what it wants, and your job's to give me what I want. Is this a problem? Thula and Squatrant looked quickly at each other, then back at him. They shook their heads. Nope, they said in chorus. The human mask smiled. Good. 
You'll make enough of a bonus that it will be worth the heat if they come after you. They glanced at each other again. Well, the thing is, Squaw said, we'll need to be spacing the lanes before anybody realizes the stuff is gone. After all, we're among the first people they'll come looking for. I trust you have a way off planet. Sorry, you'll have to make your own arrangements, Caird said. Thula swallowed and said, In that case, timing will be critical. We either have to ship out on civilian transportation at least a couple of days before the offal hits the oscillator, or sneak onto a military transport and be well toward a nexus station when things get leggy here. You two are in hatchlings just out of the egg, Caird said. You can work something out. Credits talk, Squaw said. I can see somebody being bribed in our future. True. And you will have enough credits to drown out a stadium full of politicians. The Umbarin nodded. When then? And how much? I'll need fifty or sixty kilos in carbonite and within a week. Something shaped like a big personal effects case with a handle on it. Thula looked at him. We're talking about 20 kilos minimum for the carbonite shell. Can you haul 70 or 80 kilos around without rupturing something? I'm stronger than I appear, Caird said. And you can put wheels or a small repulsor on it. Caird pulled the credit cube from his pocket and slid it across the table. My, my, the Fauline said, looking at the projection of the cube's contents inside the palms of her cupped hands. Black Sun is being more than generous. The human shoulders shrugged. Share the wealth, Kid said. It makes for good business. Everybody goes away happy. Sometimes the names did get a little confusing. Most of the time, it was the one the others in the Rimsu used. After that, it was Column. The op name bestowed by one of Count Dooku's separatist spymasters. Lens, the code name by which Black Sun knew its agent, was the one least often utilized. Lens was the sobriquet being used now, that being the one the spy's guest was familiar with. The being sitting facing Lens was ostensibly human, but in fact, concealed under the adipose rolls of a fat suit disguise, was Cared, the Nadiji assassin and enforcer. The two of them were in an empty office that belonged to a lab supervisor who had contracted a nasty local form of pneumonia during the recent cold spell. The ersatz human had just laid out what sounded like the bare essence of a plan to steal a major amount of bota and a ship in which to transport it. And you were telling me this. Why? You are our agent. It seemed only fair to warn you. The theft will cause investigation. Best you are not caught unprepared. Lenz smiled. My official persona here is quite blaster-proof. What's the real reason? The disguise's Vox unit gave a realistic offering of a human laugh. It is so refreshing not to have to deal with the dull and ignorant, Caird said. He leaned forward. Very well. 
in your official capacity here, you have access to certain data. True. But security codes for vacuum-worthy ships, especially those with hyperdrive units, are not among such data, Lenz said. I didn't think they were. But you can get medical records. Anybody in the Rimsu with standard clearance can view those files. I fail to see how that will help you steal a ship. I am going to do some very basic research, Caird said, and after I have learned some things, I will ask you for specific files that I believe will be useful. Nothing that should be secured above your ability to scan. Not a problem, Len said. I will obtain what you need. Excellent. There was a pause. Now I'm going to do you a favor, Lens. I realize you have other loyalties besides those to Black Sun, but those interests and ours here are about to cease to matter. Lens frowned. How so? The reason we are all here is singular. That reason is already dwindling in importance, and in a short time will stop completely. I'm afraid you've lost me. You're talking about the Bota? Yes. The plant, it seems, is undergoing a new mutation, one that will radically alter its prized adaptogenic properties. By its next generation, Bota will be no more valuable than any other weed growing on this hot rock. It will be chemically changed so far as to be useless as a drug. How do you know this? Lenz asked. That doesn't matter. I know it for a fact. I tell you this because, after I'm gone, you might be able to use the data to help your friends under Count Dooku's command. It might be worth a final all-out battle to secure what's left of the Bota fields, since once those are gone, there won't be any more to be had, not around here at least. This is valuable knowledge, Len said, and yet you offer it freely. The jowled head nodded ponderously. Black Sun has a long memory for enemies and for friends. We have plenty of both, but it never hurts to have more friends. Joss plodded toward his kiosk. He no longer shared it with Talk, nor with Uli. She'd moved back into her own three days ago, saying she needed space to think. Uli was still in the single unit that he'd moved to soon after Talk moved in. These days, Joss spent most of his time either in the cantina or in the OT. He only went back to his quarters when he needed sleep, and he desperately needed it now. The drone of medlifters began. They quickly built into such a cacophony that he couldn't even guess how many there were. He shook his head. That was going to be bad for whoever was on. His comlink cheeped. He answered, knowing it was bad news. What? Uli said. There's been an explosion and big fire at the A1A hydrogen plant, Joss. A hundred people seriously hurt. We've got nine lifters worth headed our way. Thirty-some wounded, most of them bad burns and... I just finished my shift. I can barely lift my hands, much less use them to operate. I know, but one of the droid surgeons just blew a gyro stabilizer. 
and it'll take hours to repair it. We're shorthanded in the OT. Colonel Vitti said to call. Joss sighed. Kark. Den sat listening to the Ugnaught med mechano specialist, Roran Zuz, feeling as if he had just been handed the key to Coruscant on a platinum platter. Zuz had supplied him with useful information in the past, but nothing like this. You're sure? You could take her to the IGB and swap it for creds, Dur. Oh, yar. How did you come by this information? Zuz grinned. Fem not in Rimso 12 over in Zenobi. She lost it for me. She runs out of the test on the local crop. Have another drink, Den said. This was big, huge, monstrous, so important in fact that... Why haven't I heard about this? The stubby little alien shrugged. Don't know. The server arrived with a fresh drink, and Zuz grabbed it as if it were the last drop of liquid on the day side of a non-rotating planet. Den continued to think about this. If the Boda was indeed losing its potency, that was major news. The stuff was worth its weight in first-grade firestones, if not more, and if it died out, the price of any that still had full strength and full spectrum would rise right out of the galaxy. Once war got around, everybody and his ugly little sibling would be out there in the fields trying to grab up as much as they could. A being could retire on what he could hide in his pockets. Yeah, this was a story, all right. A ticket to anywhere. The kind of piece that came along once in a Falleen's lifetime. Spin it right, and he knew he could. It might even be a Paraxa prize winner. And that would set him up for life. Dan had to confirm it, and fast. He had to break it before somebody else leaked it. This would put him on the map. They'd named journalism colleges for him. Towards dark, Den spotted I-5 standing outside the OT talking to Joss. The surgeon said something to the droid, then turned and went back inside. I-5, old buddy! The droid turned and saw him. Den swaggered up to him and punched him playfully in one arm. Good to see you. What's up? Besides you? Den giggled as the two of them walked through the muggy evening air. He had opened a bottle of fine Bothan grain wine to celebrate three separate sources confirming the Boda story, and now he was in a mood to really celebrate. Hey, I'm just feeling a little friendly. Don't knock it till you've tried it, he told the droid. Speaking of which, we still gotta get you into the club. And what club might that be? Den wagged a finger at him. Don't tell me you're backing out. You must experience the joys of intoxication. It'll be good for your silicon soul. Ah, yes. As a matter of fact, I believe I've come up with an absurdly simple way to do it. My synaptic grid processor is heuristic. I extrapolate new data from known data. But I also have an algorithmic subprocessor that serves my autonomic needs. Okay... You didn't understand a word of that, did you? I believe I got also. 
and my. It's like your parasympathetic nervous system, which controls your breathing, heartbeat, and so forth, functions your body needs that aren't under conscious control. While I don't need to breathe, I do need constant monitoring of things like balance, lubrication, power bus functioning. Right, got it. Then said, "What's this got to do with tying one on?" Simple. My subprocessor is programmable. I can encode it to simulate a state of inebriation. Dent stopped and stared at him. You can program yourself to get drunk. How long would it take you? I have a SynthTech AA1 nanoprocessor operating at seven petahertz with a five exabyte capacity. I wrote the program just after I mentioned it to you. It took me 6.1 picoseconds to encode the basic algorithm and calculate its functional parameters. Wow, that's、uh, fast. So, when are you going to implement the program, or get Mopac faced, as we organics say? No time like the present, as you organics say. There was an old saying on Nadij. You are never more than seven wings away from the great raptor. Stretched to fit the entire galaxy, that number went up considerably, of course. But the principle was the same: talk to somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody else, and so on, until, in what was always an amazingly short list, you found that you were able to link up with just about anybody. Cared, now comfortably and gratefully back in the robes of the silent. Stood in the gathering shade of a building thunderstorm, watching the food service tech leave the main chow hall kitchens and head for her communal kiosk. The proverb's truth was even simpler here, on a world peopled entirely by occupying forces with no indigenes of its own. With this female, he was but two sets of hands away from the pilot of the ship he intended to steal. The female, a twilight named Ord Vora. Had a relationship with Biggs Bogan, a human pilot, who was one of a trio of such in the rotation to fly the admiral's personal ship. This twilight human relationship was noteworthy for an unusual, at least here in this world, reason. Vora and Bogan were both strag players, and both of them were ranked adepts. That there were two such on a planet like Drongar was most unusual, and so naturally they would have found each other. Cared moved across the compound, staying well back from the twilight as he shadowed her. He had no interest in Vora, save as a conduit to Bogan. Bogan, who on the days when he was on standby for ferrying Admiral Kersos about, would have the new security codes for the Admiral's ship. Cared would learn when that was, and then it was just a matter of how and when to gather what he needed. Column was not without regret or even remorse as the coded message was sent to the spy separatist superiors. There had been a moment of hesitation, a long and reflective pause, but in the end, one did what one had to do. The control function was initiated, the information transmitted, and it could not be recalled once it was gone. The transmission was accomplished without difficulty, even though communications all over the base had been subject recently to noise and loss of signal, 
This was because the area had been covered not long ago by a new state-of-the-art broadband confounder stationed in the jungle about five kilometers away. The blockage wasn't consistent enough to arouse suspicion, but it did provide cover and protection when the spy had to send and receive. The official explanation, of course, was sunspots. The mission here was coming to an end. If not a blow that could topple the Republic, this last strike would at least be a barb in the beast's side worthy of a painful howl. It was tragic that many of the staff of this and of other Rimsus would surely die as a result of this action. But it was done now, and there was no turning back. Best start getting prepared to exit this venue. There would be other places, other identities, wherein an agent of Column's skill and capability would be useful. Chipping away at the foundation of the Republic a bit at a time was slow, but over long enough a period, effective. All this the spy knew to be true, of course, but the bottom line was that it was still going to be extremely difficult to look these people, one in particular, in the eyes, and pretend to know nothing about the impending doom. Of all moments, the instant of realization came to Barris as she was washing up to join the sabacc table over at the cantina. The answer is in the Force. This shouldn't have been a revelation. There was something she'd been told a thousand times at least, a litany that every Jedi student grew up hearing. When in doubt, trust the Force. You may not always interpret it correctly, but the Force never lies. She knew that. How many times, after all, had Master Unduli said the words to her gently and with the calmness of complete conviction, Use the Force, Barris. Don't think. Don't worry. Don't get caught up in the small details, the nagging concerns of it. Just use the Force. Trust it. Embrace it. The question was, how should she determine whether or not to use the Boda again to increase her connection to the Force? Ask the Force. And what so far in her life had been the strongest, the most powerful, the best connection she had had to the Force? the Bota. She could see Master Yoda smiling and nodding gently in her mind's eye. The Bota was a key, a key that opened a door to new modes of perception. Beyond that door was a path that she could follow to a place where she could find the answer she needed. And there was no point in waiting. Barris opened the lockbox next to her bed and removed one of the remaining poppers of Bota extract. She took a deep breath pressed it to her forearm, and triggered it. As if her first experience had somehow attuned her, opening her receptors, as it were, the rush was almost immediate this time. That amazing sense of familiarity, coupled with awe and wonder at the newness of it, the astonishing held-breath feeling, the breadth and depth of it stretching to infinity. She thought she was prepared for it, but she wasn't. It was just too... big... She couldn't see how anyone could accept it, take it all in, process it. It wouldn't fit into her limited comprehension. It was like trying to confine the blazing, multifaceted glory of a firestone into a flat 2D image. Her senses 
corseted into only three dimensions, couldn't even begin to make sense of it. But she didn't have to make sense of it, she realized. She had but to accept it, to be one with it. It was glorious, uplifting and terrifying all at the same time. It was as if she were hungry, and upon realizing this, was given a boundless table set with every kind of food imaginable. Choosing one dish over another was hard to do, and yet, on another level, she knew that she could. Abruptly, the table swirled and shifted, melting into variegated colors like the mingling threads of spore colonies in Drongar's night sky. It became a giant, galaxy-wide tapestry, a woven fabric so intricate and complex as to bring tears to her eyes. A perfect piece of art, beautiful beyond description, beyond belief. But wait, yes, there was perfection here, but there was something else as well. She could sense flaws in the pattern, tiny, almost insignificant defects, scattered throughout its immeasurable expanse. Barris knew instinctively that these tiny mistakes were somehow necessary, that they were stitches in the skein of existence, imperfect ones maybe, but nonetheless essential. Without them, the fabric would not hold together. She reached for one of these small, twisted threads with her mind, saw it expand and shift so that it became readable somehow. The concepts revealed to her were not words or images, neither smells, tastes, sounds, nor touch. They were instead some kind of wondrous amalgam of all of these, plus senses no being of flesh had ever had. In that moment, Barris, herself a part of the grand pattern, knew the flaw in the tapestry. The camp was in danger. There was a spy among them the same one who had been responsible for the explosions of the shuttle and on Medstar. Not dead, as they had thought, but still alive. The spy had initiated events that would, if left unattended, cause the destruction of all those who were there. Barris abruptly found herself floundering, as if swept away by a raging, swollen river. She was tossed helplessly like a twig, in it, but not of it. She tried to anchor herself, but there was nothing to grasp, nothing solid that she could perceive. She was caught in a flood, a gale, an avalanche that spun and disoriented her. Deep within, she knew that she was desperately seeking metaphors for that which could not be described, searching for some kind of mental analog that would enable her to separate herself from this chaos. She fought for calm, struggled to center herself, but she could not. Like a flood... It seemed to splash into her mouth, threatening to drown her. Like a gale, it flung her in all directions, snatching the very breath from her lungs. Like an avalanche, it threatened to crush her. It was like all those things, and none of them. It was the Force. The cantina was about as full as Den had ever seen it. As Den and I-5 entered, the reporter nearly staggered back as though struck a physical blow. The sweet scent of spice stick and gum, the tang of various alcoholic beverages, and, most of all, the combined odors of a dozen or more species, all mixed into the heavy, wet air, produced a miasma as thick and strong as Gungan bouillabaisse. He glanced at I-5. 
You sure you want to go through with this? It seems the perfect atmosphere to me. Then I-5 squeezed between two dancing orderlins and vanished. Den sighed. I'd better keep an eye on him before someone or something decides to use him for a toothpick. How he was going to manage this was a good question. Solistons were among the more height-challenged sentients in the civilized galaxy. Den climbed up on a table next to a clone trooper who had passed out. This action put him about at eye level with those who were of average height. Several species who were taller were mixed into the group as well, most notably a Wookiee, who seemed to be enjoying his ale very much and was perfectly willing to share it with others, mostly by sloshing it on them from above. A drunken Wookiee. That would no doubt make things more interesting at some point in the evening. Finally, he spotted I-5. The droid was gesticulating with far more emphasis than was customary with him. Seems pretty obvious that the elemental's out of the magnetic bottle, Den thought. I-5 had obviously already implemented what the reporter had already come to think of as the inebriation algorithm. I-5 was, not to put too fast a spin on it, drunk. Den grinned. Mission accomplished. It was crowded in the cantina, also hot, noisy, and smelly. Joss wasn't sure he could handle seeing Tulk in a social setting. What if she was with someone else? Maybe Joss wouldn't encounter Tulk after all in this crowd. That hope didn't last long. It was, in fact, Tulk who found him before he could get his first drink. He turned around and there she was, right there, her gaze fixed on his face, searching it for... what? Talk, he managed. I... I've been thinking a lot, Joss. There's more to all this than just how we feel about each other. There's more to this war than just here, what we do, who we are to each other. I need some time to process it on my own. She took a breath. I'm requesting a transfer to Rimsu 3. His mouth was dry. Rimsu 3 was over a thousand clicks north, across the Sea of Sponges. What are you saying? Can't we at least talk about it? No, not yet. Joss blew out a big breath. Does this mean we're through? She hesitated. It means we're apart for a while. And with that, she was gone. He needed a drink. He reached the bar... But before he could order anything, he heard a deep growl. He turned to look. Now there's something you don't see every day, he thought. A droid and a Wookiee playing hollow games. The game was called Dejaric. Although Joss didn't play, he was familiar with it. I-5 and the Wookiee sat at a small corner table amid all the commotion. The Wookiee was covered with coal-black shaggy fur, save for a star-shaped white patch high on the left quadrant of his chest. And at the moment, he seemed really upset, even for a Wookiee. And that was saying something. Never a boring minute, eh? Joss looked down and saw Den Dura standing beside him. Den gestured toward the Dejaric table and sighed. 
You might remember my mentioning once or twice before that I was trying to help I-5 get drunk. Yeah? Well... Caird was, after a fashion, enjoying himself, even though he was of necessity wearing the Kuba suit. He didn't mind seeing people have a good time, and the fact that he knew and would do something that would ruin their high spirits did not diminish his enjoyment. When news of the change in the bota became widespread, chaos would most likely ensue. The misfortunes of war. He dipped the masked snout into his drink, one reason he liked the Kuba's identity was because he could drink while in it. Pity he couldn't just let go and enjoy the party to the fullest, but he was also here for a practical reason. As it turned out, the human pilot Bogan had taken a double shift recently, and as a result, he would not be on standby for the Admiral's ship when Caird needed him. This was easily remedied, however. There were another two pilots in the rotation— and one of them was here in this cantina right now. This pilot, also a human, a lot of those around the galaxy cared had noticed, was behaving in a responsible manner. Since he was on standby, he was not drinking, smoking, or sniffing anything intoxicating. Sabarans, his name was. And while he seemed to be having a good time, smiling and laughing, he had restricted himself to some kind of steeped brew made from a local plant. Because Caird had access to all kinds of information, including medical records, he had learned that Sabarans had an allergic condition for which there was no cure or preventive treatment. If exposed to a certain common legume, the human would develop a fairly severe anaphylactic reaction, the symptoms of which might include urticaria and syncope secondary to ascites. Caird had gotten this information translated via the holonet, it meant that the human could break out in a serious itchy rash that could include large hives, he could faint, and if left untreated, might even choke to death as his windpipe closed. Not that it would get that bad in the middle of a rimsuit full of doctors. He'd be whisked off to a ward in a hurry, and all his symptoms could be treated easily. But he wouldn't be able to work for a day or two, which was more than enough for Caird's purposes. Caird had watched the servers with care. And as moment came, he stood and started away from his single-unit table, as if to answer a call of nature. As Caird neared the server, he said, Pardon me, could you point out the fresher? Even though the refresher was clearly marked in half a dozen languages and graphic images, the droid had no doubt heard the question more than a few times from inebriated patrons. It swiveled its head slightly and pointed with its free appendage. That way, sir. The door under the glowing sign. While the droid was thus engaged, Caird brought his hand around as if to scratch his snout, and in so doing, allowed a small pinch of legume powder to fall into the man's drink. He then headed toward the fresher. It was unlikely that anyone would suspect the man's drink had been tampered with. It wasn't poison, after all, and the attending medics would recognize the reaction for what it was. Even if they did suspect it had been deliberate... It wouldn't matter. There was no way to tie Caird to the deed. Even if the serving droid was questioned and happened to recall a Kubaz asking directions to the fresher, the Kubaz in question didn't exist. After tonight, Caird would have no more need for this particular costume. 
and it would be rendered down to its molecular level by a recycling unit. Can't find what doesn't exist. He had, in one of his fat human disguises, obtained a copy of the most recent recording of Galactic Sports Update. Upon this GSU recording was a recent Strag Sector Match Championship. If you were not a skilled player, watching a game of Strag was less interesting than watching mold grow. If you were ranked, however, such matches were fascinating. Neither the Twi'lek Vora nor the human pilot Bogan would have seen this particular match. It hadn't been holocast this far out yet. The corpulent human, whom Caird had named Mont Shomu, would arrange soon to be heard talking about this match, which he happened to have a recording of, within Vora's hearing. She would fall over herself to obtain it from him. The fat man would be loath to part with it, however, being a fan of the game himself. Of course, he would be willing to share a viewing of the match with her. And naturally, she could bring a friend. Caird smiled as he exited the fresher and returned to his table amid the noise and heat of the busy cantina. There was a real joy in watching a carefully made plan unfold. Let me get this straight, Joss said. I-5 is drunk? I've been watching him for hours, Den said. And believe me, he soused, if that's the proper term for a droid. From a program. Yeah. Which he wrote? Right. Joss looked over at the game table, where the various transparent hollow creatures that were the pieces of the game shifted and scratched restlessly on their squares. I-5 said loudly, My molator takes your hoochicks! I win! (laughs) The Wookiee roared with rage. Just looked back at the game just in time to see the Wookiee stand, grab I-5's right arm, and wrench it from the droid's shoulder. My, my. Ooh, bad loser, Den said. Looks like, Joss agreed. They both leapt forward, grabbed the droid, and pulled him away from the game board as the furious Wookiee harned and moaned in his own language and waved the mechanical arm over his head. I-5 felt no pain, of course. He seemed more confused than anything else. I seem to be missing an arm, he said to Joss. I'm sure I had it when I came in. I-5... Den said. I think maybe it's time to sober up now. I-5 shrugged. (laughs) If you say so. His photoreceptors flickered for a moment, then resumed what Joss thought of as their normal glow. The droid looked about him in mild surprise. Interesting. What were you thinking? Joss asked. Challenging a Wookiee to a Dejarik game? I wasn't thinking. That was the point. I was drunk, or at least as close to it as I could program. Den said, I'd feel terrible if I was responsible for you getting drunk and into a bar fight, if it turned out not to be worth it. I think it was, I-5 said. I think it was very worthwhile. He looked at Joss. I now remember that I have an obligation to fulfill, one that involves my returning to Coruscant as soon as possible. It was a request of my erstwhile friend and partner, Lorne Pavan. 
He asked me to watch over his son. The next day, Joss, Den, Barris, and I-5 walked towards the OT. You're really going to Coruscant, I-5? Barris asked. Yes. But your military property, Joss said. Even if you could find a way to get transferred to Coruscant, you'll have limited freedom to search for Pavan's son. Also true, which means, I-5 said calmly, I might have to desert. Joss said, if you do, and you're caught, they'll wipe your memory down to the last quantum shell. If I'm caught. My time on Coruscant wasn't completely misspent. I know a variety of ways to slip through the cracks, especially in a megalopolis that large. Den sucked on a hydro pack for a moment, then said, No doubt, but first you have to get off Drongar. And won't you arouse suspicion traveling by yourself? Droids, particularly protocol droids, make interstellar journeys all the time. We're not children. No one will look twice at me. Especially if I carry the papers of an envoy en route to the Coruscant Temple on Jedi business. He looked at Barris. She looked back quite seriously. You are willing to risk everything, your very self, to do this? She asked. It's something I promised Lorne many years ago, when his son Jax was first taken from him. He asked me to make sure that, should anything ever happen to him, I would do my best to keep watch over Jax, even though he was under the protection of the Jedi. Lorne did not trust the Jedi. It so happens, Barris said, that I have something I wish to see delivered to the temple on Coruscant as soon as possible. There are very few to whom I would entrust such a mission. If you would be willing? I-5 said, I would be honored. Column stared at the message on the desktop. It had taken several hours to decipher the cumbersome triple code, but this time, it had been worth the effort. The Separatists had gotten the missive sent from this location earlier. They had checked it out and found that the Bota was indeed losing its potency. Much quicker than the spy had expected, they had come to a decision. There would be an all-out attack on the Republic forces on Drongar in the next few days. They were coming. This Rimsu, along with all the others, would shortly be overrun. They would not be taking prisoners. At least, none they intended to keep alive. It was nearly midnight. The long-snouted Kuba's costume was gone, and the fat suit was a lot of trouble to flesh up and don, so Caird had his meeting with Thula, dressed as the silent monk. You have what I need? Yes. Then you and your friend have your two days' warning. I suggest you use the time wisely. Where is my case? he asked. By now it's in your kiosk, next to your other luggage. It was a pleasure doing business with you, friend. You have a way to depart? Yes. We've secured tentative passage on a small transport vessel leaving tomorrow. There is a pilot open to bribes. A surface-to-ship transport won't take you far. Far enough to obtain something else that will. Money is a powerful lubricant. Perhaps we'll meet again someday, Caird said. Perhaps. 
she said. Caird moved away from the shed and back to his kiosk. The carbonite slab stood next to his other bag, disguised so as to resemble a moderately priced travel case. It was almost a perfect match to his luggage. Frozen in carbonite, the Bodo would keep until somebody triggered the melter. He hefted the case. It was heavy, nearly 70 kilos, he judged, but easily within his ability to pick up and carry. Joss woke up in the middle of the night, grainy from his most recent bout of drinking. He sat up on his cot and rubbed his eyes. He had dreamed of Tulk, and in the dream, she had told him why she wanted to go away. Only now he couldn't remember what she had said. Joss stood, padded to the fresher, and splashed water on his face. He rinsed his mouth out. He had been drinking lately to such an extent that even the anti-vassalgia drugs that normally quashed hangovers were losing their effectiveness. He looked at himself in the mirror. What a sad sight you are. He sighed. No question about that. Joss turned away from the mirror and went back to his cot. He stood there staring at the bed. There was the question, wasn't it? The big one. The only one. Why? The sudden realization hit him hard enough to make him sit down. It was as if he had been punched in the solar plexus, his wind stolen so that he couldn't take another breath. He knew. He knew. Great Uncle Errol. He had talked to Tulk. He had told her what it was like to give up family and home forever. He had poisoned Tulk's thoughts. Uncle Errol. Caird, or Mont Shomu, as he was known in his fat human disguise, smiled as the human pilot and the Twi'lek food service tech sipped from the bottle of local wine he had brought along. It wasn't bad wine, made from a round reddish-purple fruit about the size of a human's closed fist that grew on the fungus-like trees of the Jasiric Highlands. Called Avadam, the pulp was crispy when ripe and had a tart yet sweet taste. The wine reflected this. That the wine was drugged with myocaine didn't affect the flavor at all, given that, in the liquid oral form, the muscle relaxant was tasteless, odorless, and colorless. To allay any suspicion, Caird also drank the wine. The difference was that a pinch of neutralizer had gone into his glass, along with the straw-colored wine, ensuring that he would feel no effect from the chemical. Let's get started, shall we? The Twi'lek female said. The excitement was high in her voice. Caird smiled, and the fat face smiled with him. How sweet and naive. The image of a large hall filled with tables, at each of which two players sat, blossomed in the air above them. The hollow proj was sharp, and they would get to enjoy the first twenty or thirty minutes of it. After that, once the pharmaceutical took hold, they would be awake and alert, but simply unable to move. After fifteen minutes, the pair of them began to slump, and while they no doubt wondered and worried at this, they simply did not have the energy to do anything about it, save to frown. Cared moved to the human. Can you speak? Uh, eh, yes, 
Bogan managed, his voice a dragged out slur. What? I'll keep it short and simple. I've drugged you. I want the codes to the Admiral's personal ship. Access, security, operational, everything. The drug I gave you is not fatal. However, if you don't give me the codes, or if you give me false ones, I will kill you and your friend. Do you understand? Uh, yes. Good. Caird produced a recorder from his pocket. He knew that the man's slurs wouldn't matter. The security codes were not Vox-specific, so anybody could make them work. Give me the codes. Take your time. Identify each one clearly. If they work, you and your girlfriend will have a pleasant evening watching the strag match. And by noon tomorrow, you'll be able to move well enough to call for help. Joss was as angry as he could ever remember being. He saw the man before him almost as if there were a red haze in front of his eyes. He said through gritted teeth, were you not my great uncle and my commanding officer, I'd knock you on your butt. In your place, I expect I would feel the same way. How dare you interfere between us this way? What gives you the right? I only wanted to spare you grief. Spare me grief? By driving off the woman I love? Sorry, doctor, but I don't quite see the medical indication there. Talk is the cure for so much of what bothers me, hurts me, scares me, that I cannot begin to explain it to you. Joss paced up and down, seething for a moment. I still can't believe she listened to you. That she did this is a measure of her love and regard for you, Joss. How do you figure that? She doesn't want to see you ostracized from your family. Talk is my family. She ranks first and foremost. Everyone else from now on comes in second. I love her. I cannot see any life without her. And if I have to crawl across an obsidian razor field on my hands and knees to convince her of this, I will. The older man smiled. Something amusing? Joss felt his anger surge hotter. He was going to hit the man, great uncle, commanding officer, or not. I made that same speech to my brother long before you were born. He stood. Congratulations, nephew. I will support your choice in any way that I can. Joss blinked, feeling like he'd been whiplashed by one of those hard banks against vacuum he'd seen fighter pilots pull. What? To go against thousands of years of custom is not a task for the weak. If talk meant anything less to you, you'd ultimately regret it. As you say, you might anyway. But at least you're starting from a position of strength. Joss leaned across the desk and looked the older man in the eye. At the moment, uncle, thanks to your meddling, I'm starting from nowhere. Talk is going to transfer to another Rimsu. She isn't talking to me now. Somehow, I don't see things getting better with a thousand clicks of water between us. Son, 
Nobody in the Republic Expeditionary Medical Force goes anywhere on this planet without my leave. If the woman you love is worth giving up everything else you have to be with, then you have something that's worth doing. I'll correct my mistake. She'll be around. But how? The damage has already been done. How can you... By letting Talk watch the recording of this conversation, Admiral Curso said. She was willing to give you up because she loves you. If she sees and hears how much you love her, it will make a difference. Dender sat by himself in the cantina and brooded. He had finished drafting his piece on the mutating Boda, and all modesty aside, he considered it one of his best efforts. He'd managed to tie some being-interest angles into it, by examining the potential ways in which various species would be affected by the loss of the miracle adaptogenic, using a number of case studies verified via the holonet. In addition, he'd worked in a hard-hitting bit on the irony of fighting a war for a plant that then mutates and makes said war pointless. All in all, it was the kind of journalism that garnered notices. There was only one problem. Upon reflection, he didn't see how he could file it. Once it became common knowledge that the Boda was useless, Den foresaw two things happening— the second thing would be the cessation of hostilities and eventual evacuation of Drongar, since there would be nothing else on this simmering dung ball to fight over, which was just fine with him. The first thing, however, would be a no-holds-barred final battle between the Separatists and the Republic over the last viable patches of the plant. Dan could get the story out secretly, he knew that but he would be at least partially responsible for a shipload of Bantha Pudu falling on the people he'd come to consider his friends. Den sighed gustily, dewflaps fluttering in vexation. Whether the leak came from him or someone else, the calamity was certain to come eventually, and when it did, it would be the sort of thing best viewed from a few parsecs away, which meant he should be finding a bunk on an outbound vessel soon, which is why the thought of accompanying I-5 on his journey to Coruscant was quite appealing. It would be easy to connect from there to Sullust, or just about anywhere else. But something about going, about leaving people like Joss and Barris and Talk, Klo, Uli, it just didn't go down easily. How had things gotten this bad? That he suddenly had all these people to care about? As one of the silent, getting up to Medstar was easy. Religious and meditative orders, particularly ones that had beneficial effects on the ill and wounded, were usually given preferential treatment. The Admiral's ship was berthed away from the other shuttles and transports, which wasn't surprising. One had to approach it down a long and private corridor. There wasn't a guard posted at the bay because there was no perceived need for one. Without the codes, you couldn't get into the ship or operate it or bypass flight control or get past the picket ships, and the only people who had the codes were the official pilots. So, why worry? 
he entered the access code on the keypad. The hatch unsealed and opened. Caird moved hurriedly up the steps. Once inside the ship, he dropped the case of Bota and hurried to the cockpit area. He punched in the security codes, powered up the mains, and began the launch sequence checks. Flight control came on the con. A-1, this is flight control. We show you powering up. That you, Lieutenant Bogan? Here was another tricky part, but one that Caird had planned no less carefully than the rest. He could imitate Bogan's voice. Humans were easy, with their limited vocal cord system. But doing a mask good enough to fool somebody looking at you on a ship's holocam was problematic at best. He quickly loaded a chip and tapped the control. A blurry image appeared on the comms monitor, fuzzing in and out. Yeah, it's me, Carrot said in Bogan's voice. I... Kark. The cam's messing up. With that, he cut the transmitter off. You're just gonna have to imagine my handsome face, Flight. The controller chuckled. A human female, Caird realized. What are you doing, Bogan? We don't show any flight plans for the Admiral today. I need practice time, Caird replied as Bogan. If I want to fly commercial liners after I get out of the Navy. I'll only be gone a couple hours. A few loops, a couple of rolls. I get to log it. Everybody's happy. And the Admiral doesn't mind? He said he wasn't going anywhere. I think he was headed for the soak tubs after I saw him. But you can call him and clear it if you want. Get the Admiral out of a soak tub? Yeah, right. Give me the airlock codes. Caird grinned his raptor's grin and rattled off the code. There wasn't much to pack. Den's years as a field correspondent had taught him how to live lightly. Two pieces of luggage, both small, were all he needed. Load it up, move it out. He'd done it a thousand times, at least. The announcer chimed. Come in. The entry panel slid open, revealing I-5. Just the droid I was looking for, Den said. I-5's left photoreceptor made the droid equivalent of a raised eyebrow. He looked around. You seem to be packed and ready for departure, though it's somewhat difficult to tell, given the general, um, ambiance. Den grinned. I'm not the best housekeeper on this planet, he admitted. Probably not on most of the known planets. Or, I expect, the unknown ones. I-5 extended a hand. I came to say goodbye. Den did not take the droid's hand. No need. I'm coming with you. Indeed. To what do I owe this honor? To the fact that, very soon, this place will be overrun with separatist droids, mercs, and anything else they've got that's smart enough to move and shoot at the same time. Den explained briefly about the Boda mutation and what the likely outcome would be once this became common knowledge. Once he had cleared the last of the picket ships, Caird felt a definite sense of relief. With the ship on automatic pilot, Caird refreshed himself, ate a meal of synthesized bull grubs, and went through a short series of martial exercises. The case was where he had left it. It was heavy, not so much that he couldn't lift and haul it, but enough so that the set of wheels on it was useful. Caird rolled it back toward the control cabin. 
The ship boasted a series of pressure doors down the main corridor. Each had a slightly raised threshold to better affect an airtight seal. Luggage makers were well aware of these threshold obstacles, and thus standard luggage wheels were of a flexible compound that would roll over the pressure door lips with ease. Not so the wheels of the fake case. Kerr didn't know where his former partners in crime had found these wheels, but they were definitely made of harder stuff. For when he hit the first threshold, the case stopped with a jolt and one of the wheels broke. Kerr shook his head. He'd have to carry it after all. He lifted the case and both the wheel and its axle fell off, taking with them a fist-sized chunk of carbonite that dropped onto the deck with a clunk. Something metallic glinted from the edge of the broken case. Caird stared at it. There was not supposed to be any metal inside the carbonite. He considered the possibilities. First possibility. Something was inside the carbonite with the bota. Second. Something was inside the carbonite instead of the bota. The assault ship had an onboard medical unit and it included a diagnoster. Caird carefully lifted the case in both arms and made his way to the auto dock. Caird carefully put the case onto the diagnoster's table. He called up the instructions for the device on the computer, scanned them, and found the maximum settings. He touched the proper controls. A clear, hoop-shaped transparasteel radiation shield lowered over the case. There came a power hum. It was but the work of a moment for the medical device to produce an image of what was within, and what the scanner showed was not bricks of compressed bota. What it showed was a bomb. Thula and Squatrant had betrayed him. They had taken the bota for themselves and given him a death sentence instead, and he had paid them well to do it. It had been a bold move. Had it worked, the pair would have been very rich and nobody anywhere would be the wiser. Caird lifted the case and headed briskly for the nearest airlock. He did not know when the timer was set to detonate the device. He could feel himself beginning to sweat as he deposited the case in the lock, stepped back to the other side of the hatch, turned off the A-grab in the airlock, and slapped the cycle button. The winds were at Caird's back this time. The rush of air from the depressurized lock carried the bomb away from the ship into vacuum. He returned to the cabin, and in a few seconds he had accelerated enough to leave the case safely behind. It might not go off for hours, days even. The soundless flare was picked up by his rear array less than two minutes after jettisoning the bomb. The readout showed a yield of half a kiloton. The bomb would have turned him and the ship into a cloud of incandescent plasma. Caird clenched a fist looked at it as if it already held the two scoundrels' fates. He hoped Thula and Squatrant enjoyed their riches fully, for whatever time was left to them, that time would not be nearly as long as they thought, and their end would be most unpleasant. Most unpleasant. Joss was in the middle of shrapnel removal from a trooper. In this case, a bowel resection was necessary. The building's refrigeration units were offline again, so the air was clammy and hot. 
and the necessity of being up to his elbows in the trooper's pungent intestines wasn't helping things any. And yet, even as Joss worked away at his grisly task, he was smiling. His heart seemed to have its own tiny anti-grav unit. It threatened to burst free of his chest and float away, up to the bands of rust and verdigris girdling the sky. He felt like he could handle any case, repair any injury, no matter how extensive. The reason for the sense of joy was quite simple. He and Tulk were back together again. He could feel her presence beside him, attentive and ready to hand him whatever surgical tool was needed. They hadn't had a chance to speak all that much before the incoming medlifters had driven them into the OT. Just a whispered apology, a quick kiss, and then they had to scrub and gown up. That was all, but it was more than enough. He finished the resection. The trooper was stabilized and gurneyed off, making room for another. This one's chest rattled with dried blood. Joss and Tulk grinned at each other through their masks. Joss felt six meters tall and invulnerable. He was back with the woman he loved. That was all he needed. He knew he could handle anything thrown at him now. Something smashed into the force dome and exploded. Outside, the rain had stopped, and Barris waded through puddles from the OT to her kiosk. There was a spy in the camp. Of that she was sure. Who was it? If she could puzzle out him or her or it, she could likely find out what the coming danger was. She had been here on Drongar long enough, and her use of the force was certainly developed sufficiently that she could eliminate some people as suspects. She did not know who the spy was, but perhaps by the process of elimination, she could determine who it wasn't. First, it had to be somebody who had been in place here before she had arrived on this planet, because suspicious actions had already happened. Certainly, the explosion of the Boda transport had taken some time to arrange. So that immediately removed Uli from the pool, since he had arrived only recently. Joss? No. She had been with him long enough to know it wasn't in him to be a murderer. Zan was dead, and his heart had been too pure in any event. Colonel Vitis. He was in a position to gather intelligence, better than anyone else here, perhaps, but... No. He had no thought shield, and she sensed no great malice in him. Who did that leave? Dendur. The reporter posed as a cynic, but clearly was not. Nor did Barris feel he was evil enough to kill people. Wait. It was true that the Force didn't lie, but it didn't always reveal everything either. There were two people here whom she knew, but could not scan deeper than the surface. Talk Latrine, the Lordean, who could read a face like a child's textbook, but who kept a tight cover over her own thoughts and emotions. And Chloe Merritt, the Aquani Minder, who also had, by dint of assiduous training, a thought shield that protected his thoughts and feelings, hiding them behind his smile. She suddenly recalled another fact. Both Tulk and Merritt had been on the MedStar when the explosion had occurred. Tulk or Merritt? 
The more Barris thought about it, the more it seemed to her that the secret agent had to be one or the other. Nothing else made sense. Any killer with a mind open to her touch would have been like a black lamp among all these healing folk. She couldn't have missed it. There was, she knew, an immediate way for her to find the truth. She stopped walking toward her kiosk, turned, and headed for the OT. A simple, direct way. Often these were the best. A flash of light flared overhead, followed almost instantly by a loud boom. Barris looked up and saw the heat wash of an exploding artillery round splashing against the force dome. They were under attack. She ran for the operating theater. Barris reached the OT. She headed for Joss and Tulk. Barris, what's twirling? Joss said. I need to speak to Tulk for a moment. Tulk raised a quizzical eyebrow. Barris took a deep breath. Tulk, I need you to drop your thought shield and open yourself to me. It's important. Tulk did not hesitate. Okay. With that single word, Barris knew she already had her answer. The mind probe merely confirmed it. What poured from Tulk was suffused with love for Joss Vandar and her own self-respect and pride in herself as a healer. It had nothing to do with espionage or sabotage. That meant there was only one person left who was a reasonable suspect. Thank you, Tulk. Tulk said, And we're doing this... why? Barris looked at her and Joss. Decided they deserved to know. Joss especially. She took a deep breath and told them. Merritt also known as Column and Lens, looked around his office for the final time. The artillery rounds bursting more or less harmlessly against the protective force dome were no threat. But once again, nobody had bothered to let him know precisely when they would begin their real attack, and it was irritating in the extreme. He was a valuable resource to the Separatists. Why did they continue to risk him so? Well, he would take that up with them later. Time to go, he said out loud. He headed for the door, opened it, and stopped in surprise. Joss Vandar stood before him, a blaster in his hand, pointed right at him. The mortar rounds fell more often. As Barris hurried to find Vides and report her suspicion, her certainty of Merritt's guilt, she noticed that a thunderstorm was heading their way. That was good. Heavy rain interfered with tactical beam weapons, absorbing or deflecting much of their force. The sense of impending doom was nearly palpable. It was too late now for the capture of the Separatist spy to do them much good, Barris knew. He could be made to answer for his crimes, assuming any of the Republic forces survived to do that. But with the attack obviously in full swing, Merritt wasn't Barris's biggest worry. The survival of the camp was. Unless a miracle came to pass, the combined mortar and energy weapon attacks would pound them all into paste. You can stop it. It was an almost tangible voice in her head. She was carrying a popper of bota in her pocket. 
Just take it out, inject it into her arm, and in a few seconds, she would have the ability to turn the tide of conflict. No question about it. She knew this. There was no doubt. How would it feel to have that much power, to be able to stop a war? To go from being a Padawan to becoming the most powerful Jedi in the galaxy in a matter of moments? One who could use the Force in ways no one had ever been able to even comprehend, much less use before. To direct vast energies, primal powers, like an active volcano channeling molten rock and hurling it in erupting fountains of lava. Nothing could stand before it. There was nothing in the galaxy that could resist the Force, if it could but be channeled properly, shaped and primed and driven by her will. She reached into her pocket and gripped the injector. Think of all the lives you can save. Yes, that was what she did, wasn't it? That was her primary mission. She was a healer. She saved lives. Only this time, it would be on an enormously larger scale. The storm drew close. Lightning flashed, thunder boomed, to join the sound of mortars exploding against the protective force dome. The moment had come. She had to choose now. Take the bota and save them all, or... Don't take the bota and know that countless beings, including some whom she had come to know as friends, would certainly die. Barris pulled the injector from her pocket... The choice was simple enough, wasn't it? Why even hesitate? The gain here far outweighed the risks. The end more than justified the means. She had been to the heart of the Force already. How could it be wrong to go back now and seize it? Use it for such a noble purpose? It would feel good, so good. It was right. She cleared her left sleeve, held the injector in her right hand. She positioned it over the inside of her wrist. Barris touched the popper to her skin. She put her thumb on the firing stud. And as she was about to trigger it, a memory rose within her. A memory of Oa Park on Coruscant. Of a lesson she had learned there. One that she had already applied here on Drongar when facing the deadly fighter Fojai. The memory of a conversation between her and her teacher about the dark side. There may come a time when you experience this, Barris. I hope not, but if ever it happens, you must recognize and resist it. It will feel evil? Oh no, it will feel better than anything you have ever experienced. Better than you would have thought anything could feel. It will feel empowering Fulfilling, satisfying. Worst of all, it will feel right. And therein lies the real danger. Barris Ophi stood under stormy and violent skies, only the slightest pressure of her finger away from rejoining the Force in a way that had been more wonderful than anything she had ever felt or had ever imagined anything could feel. And in that moment, a heartbeat, an eon, she understood what her teacher had been trying to tell her that day in the park. To give in to the dark side was the path to ruination, to corruption worse even than death. Dead, you could not harm anyone. But alive, 
and with a dark side driving you, you could become a monster. Carefully, she lifted the popper from her arm and put it back into her pocket. In that moment, Barris felt something new rise within her, a certainty as strong and real as her journey to the center of the force had been. She was a Padawan no longer. And the knowledge of why welled in her equally unmistakable. You truly became a Jedi Knight on the day when you realized that you already were one. Standing there, amid the chaos and cacophony of the storm and the Separatist attack, Barriss Ophi threw back her head and laughed. Chloe Merritt said, Joss, what is it? He stared at the human blocking his way. The blaster in Joss's hand was dead still, as if the man's arm had been carved from wood. You killed Zan, Joss said tonelessly. Fear blossomed in Merritt's gut, a flower made of frozen nitrogen. He let none of it show. No, Zan died when the Separatists attacked. The transport was hit by a stray round. You were there, Joss. So was I, remember? I remember, Joss said. You're under a lot of stress, Joss, Merritt said. I don't know where this delusion is coming from, but I think we should table any further discussion until we're both safely off-world. Joss laughed, but Merritt's empathic ability sensed no humor. Instead, he sensed rage, held in check by cold determination, like an ice cap plugging a volcanic vent. Sorry, Joss said. That just struck me as funny. You thinking you're going anywhere? Security will come for you soon. Merritt shook his head. But I won't be here, Joss. Yes, you will. Merritt started backing up toward the far door, Don't do it, Chloe. Joss aimed the blaster at Chloe. Don't do it, Chloe. The big Aquani kept going. Chloe! Merritt backed up another step. The rear door's proximity sensor registered his presence and opened the portal. Joss took a deep breath, aimed the blaster, and fired. There was an explosion. A crushing clap of thunder, a blinding light. Pain seared into him. He cried out, felt himself falling. The Force Dome blew. Ironically, it was a lightning bolt rather than a beam that finally overloaded the breakers. It was fortunate in a way, Den was to reflect later, Though the bolt was powerful enough to stand everyone's hair, cilia, or sensory stalks on end, it wasn't accompanied by the really nasty stuff, like gamma rays. But thanks would have to come later as well. At the moment, Den was too busy cowering under a table in the cantina to think about much of anything except escape. The transports had been ferrying up patients for the past hour, and next in line, he knew, were civilian non-coms like himself. Then came the officers, and finally, assuming there were any left by then, the clone troops. That order worked just fine for him. 
He intended to be the first in the non-com line. Look, he's coming around, Barris's voice said. It sounded hollow, as if echoing from a well. Joss tried to open his eyes, but white light seared them. Zan, he croaked. Don't do this. Don't die. But it was too late. Joss knew that if he opened his eyes, he would see Zan's lifeless body lying there on the deck. He didn't want to see it. Not again. Joss? He felt gentle hands on him. Joss, it's Barris. Everything's all right. Come on back to us. Joss opened his eyes. The light wasn't so bad this time. He blinked and focused on Tulk, who grinned tearfully at him. Where are we? Sickbay One, on Medstar, she said. Joss raised himself on one elbow. Ow! His head hurt. He touched the synth flesh bandage on his head. Uli pushed him gently back down. Easy, hotshot. You're lucky to be alive. The roof came down on you. You've got a concussion. Merit, Joss whispered. What happened? Is he... He's dead, Joss, Barris said gently. Joss saw Colonel Vides and Admiral Curso standing behind Tulk and Barris. He said, Merritt was trying to get away. I shot him. Vides said, You did the right thing, Joss. Yes, Uncle Errol added. You stopped the dangerous enemy agent from escaping at the risk of your own life. When Uli and Security and I got there, we found you unconscious and Merritt dead. He had a holdout blaster up his sleeve, but he didn't get the chance to use it. Uli patched you up on the transport. He raised his right hand in a slow salute. Well done, Captain. He lowered the salute and added, I'm proud of you, nephew. I'm not sure, Joss said. About what? Whether I did it because I knew he was going to cause more death and grief, or... He trailed off. Because of Zan? Tulk said. Joss nodded. It doesn't matter. He had to be stopped. You did it. You can work out the rest of it later. We'll have plenty of time. It was true. He did it. He had killed another sentient being. Never mind why. Never mind if there was good and proper reason for doing so. He, a doctor had destroyed a life. Joss knew there would be some sleepless nights for him as a result of that. But, as Tulk had pointed out, what else could he have done? Joss started to shake his head in confusion, then groaned. Easy, Uli said. Give the glue a chance to set. And the Rimsu? What happened? Take a look. Den's voice came from nearby. The reporter in I-5 had just entered, and Den was pointing at a viewport. Tulk and Barris carefully helped Joss to his feet. The lower quadrant of the southern continent seemed to be on fire. Thick clouds of smoke spread in the upper atmosphere, drifting out over the Kondru Sea. Bye-bye, Boda, Den murmured. Vidi said, 
The Separatists are also on the run. We managed to save most of our troops. How? Uli asked. It looked like they were rolling right over us. That's how, Vidi said, pointing to another port. Uli moved to it and looked out. Whoa! Barris looked through the port at the gigantic wedge-shaped ship, bristling with weaponry, cruising slowly toward them. That's a Republic Star Destroyer, she said. Venator class. The Resolution. Sent here to mop up and escort us back to the core systems, the Admiral said. The Battle of Drongar is over. There's nothing left down here to fight for now. We came out of it with about two metric tons of Boda, which our droids are sealing in carbonite as fast as they can. No intel yet on how much the Separatists got. Given the intensity of their saturation bombing, I'd be surprised if they got much, Vides mused. I have to lie down now, Joss said. I'm a little tired. Barris and Tulk eased them back down on the bed. It felt wonderful. He closed his eyes, and the various conversations around him merged into a faraway buzz, like the sounds of wing stingers and fire gnats on a hot Drangaran night. This is Jonathan Davis. We hope you've enjoyed this production of Star Wars MedStar 2 Jedi Healer by Michael Reeves and Steve Perry. This program was produced, directed, and abridged by Kevin Thompson. Executive producer, Jacob Bronstein. Star Wars MedStar 2 Jedi Healer is a production of Lucasfilm Limited, copyright 2004, all rights reserved, used under authorization. Music composed by John Williams. Music publishing by Warner Tamerlane Publishing Corporation and Bantha Music. Music Master Production, Copyright 2004, Lucasfilm Limited. This has been a Random House audio presentation. All rights reserved.